0: But I'm getting little background noise from like your driver. I think something. it's
1: I think it's my um, my computer's fan just turned on. So uh, oh, okay. once you're it, done, it's some
0: sort yeah. Okay. Yeah,
1: once you're done, I'm I'm gonna pause for a second and I'll move that uh, to because I think what's happening is it's vibrating the table that the microphone is resting on. <laughs> oh, I see. So I need to move it off the table, and that should. In fact, let me just try that real quick. Okay. If I just lift it. That took it significantly down, I think, right? Oh, yeah. Just a sec. Finding a place to set it. Uh <laughs> oh, experimenting with new technology, Al. Mm-hmm. Hello everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days, and not-so-good old days, of World Championship Wrestling, series by series. Coming to you live, via pre-recording, at Let's Go to the Ring satellite base, I'm your host, Bob Moore, and my co-host, coming through the bland red tunnel, flanked by definitely real fans, is Alec Pridgen. I'd
0: like to thank all my real fans that are totally here, for real. (laughs) Good to have you here. Definitely for real. How's it going tonight, Al? Good. How's it going with you? It's going all right.
1: It's going all right. Um, I, I feel I should announce that we are, or I at least am, attempting to record with a new desktop microphone. The uh, the yate. I believe I'm required to pronounce it as. That is correct. Yes. So um, the audio may be interesting tonight because I haven't quite figured this thing out yet, but I'm making a good go of it.
0: <laughs> Think of it this way: if you give us bad audio, that's just a feature of. WCW. <laughs> it, that, that is true, that is true. But it would mean that I can't criticize them for it
1: anymore, mm. so gotta get it right.
0: To properly mimic their ring announcer, you have to randomly turn your volume way down and then slowly turn it up as you're talking mid-sentence. Gotta do the right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> There's a bunch of time in this show where he's announcing I can hear him just barely and someone's clearly turning the knob and it goes up from like 4 <laughs> to 12. Just messing with him. Yeah. Oh, now you can hear me. Thanks, guys.
1: <laughs> well, after our brief foray into the AWA, we are back with our third series. We started off with a long series, followed it up with a short one, and now we're somewhere in the middle with Slamboree. Slamboree runs from 1993 to 2000 for a total of eight shows. It begins in May 1993 a few short months before WCW would split from the NWA that September. Unlike our last two series, it has a consistent placement in the year. Every Slamboree takes place in May. In its first three iterations, Slamboree exists as a sort of combination wrestling show and Hall of Fame ceremony, honoring wrestling legends and sometimes featuring them in matches. In 1995, the show was actually held in St. Petersburg, Al. Oh, nice. Yeah, the Bayfront Arena. And you still out the window and see it now. <laughs> in 1996, the business was changing. Slambury takes place roughly one week before the arrival of Scott Hall in WCW to kick off the NWO angle. Not that Slambury 1996 has anything to do with that. It's a Battle Bowl show, which I'm sure will thrill us.
0: Oh, yeah. Got two more of those to go through before we're done with that concept.
1: (laughs) From that year on, the Legends aspect is pretty much dropped, so we'll have to see if anything else replaces it. Slamboree is also famous, or perhaps infamous, for its 2000 edition. (laughs) But we've got most of the series before we get to that. Yes. Starting with Slamboree 1993, A Legends Reunion. Slamboree 93 was held on May twenty third, 1993 at the Omni in Atlanta, Georgia, in front of 7,008 fans.
0: Very exact number, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, two guys, two guys didn't show up, so it's not 7,010. Yes, there you go. 3,722 of those paid.
1: Al, if you'll recall, the Omni held four different Starcades in 1985, 1986, 1989, and 1992. Correct. Slamboree 1993 gets about half the attendance of 85 and 86, oh. about 1,000 more than 89, and about 1,000 less than 92. So it beats one of them, at least. Oh, okay. But you can definitely tell that they booked a
0: bigger arena than they can fill tonight. There's lots of empty seats visible. Should I mention what also was held at the Omni a few years before this show? Sure, go ahead. The 1988 Democratic National Convention. <laughs> yeah. Dukakis packed the house for that one, I'm sure. (laughs) On a
1: pay-per-view front, Slamboree 93 earns about 100,000 buys. That's pretty normal for WCW in 1993. It's about 20,000 less than that year's Starcade, but almost exactly the same as 1992's. So at least there's that. It's time to honor WCW's legends, so let's go to the Hall of Fame ring
2: the history of professional wrestling, the chosen few have scaled the peaks of excellence to become legends of sport. Tonight, the greatest of these have converged on Atlanta's Omni for a Legends reunion. And as we honor the legends of the past, new history will be made as the heroes of the present battle for championship gold and personal glory. World Championship Wrestling presents Slamboree 93, a legend You are reunion. looking low.
0: Tony, we couldn't open. Wait to, uh, Tony couldn't wait to interrupt. fitting the eyes after you while you were thinking. Yeah, yeah.
1: We open with a nice little video showing black and white photos of various prior wrestling stars, transitioning to color photos of the current crop of stars. It's short and pretty nicely done, marred only slightly by the fact that host Tony Schiavone is brought in a little early and talks over the end of the video package. As in AWA, so too in WCW, I guess. Yes. Fireworks go off as we see a shot of the prior stars being honored tonight, all gathered in the wrestling ring, and Tony calls out just a few of the names. Mr. Wrestling 2, Dory Funk Jr., Vern Gagne, Don Owen, and Nick Bockwinkle. It's neat to hear Gagne and Bockwinkle in particular get mentions after we just did our AWA episode. That is interesting, yeah. Yeah, we we didn't plan that. No, we did not. (laughs) Sadly, Ghani did not bring his dog with him. Sadly, yes. Yeah, I was disappointed by that. Speaking of the AWA, Tony's co-host tonight is the living legend, Larry Zabisco. Last episode, we were saying how much we missed him in the AWA show, and here he is. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Again, we did not plan that. (laughs) No, we did not. Zabisco says the men in the ring were his inspiration, and specifically calls out The Crusher, who he found terrifying when he was a kid. Quoth Larry, time fears only the pyramids and the legends of professional wrestling. That is a modification, apparently, of an Arabic proverb that is roughly man fears time, time fears the pyramids. Ah. I believe the general idea is that the pyramids stand despite the passage of time and all the changes it's brought, they're timeless.
0: Yeah, makes sense.
1: And thus, too, the legends of pro wrestling, according to Larry Zabisco. It's kind of a nice tribute. Yeah, yeah. Tony runs down the card and talks up the world heavyweight title match between the British Bulldog and Vader, and wishes Jesse Ventura well as he's in the hospital tonight.
0: Probably explains why Zabisco is co-hosting, though he also fits very nicely with the show concept. Yeah, he was a B&C show announcer they would use, so it's just a temporary promotion for him.
1: Yeah. Tony throws to Max Payne, who is on stage with his guitar, and Payne rocks out with some pyro and jams on his guitar quite nicely. Mm-hmm. As a bunch of shirtless, shoeless, and nearly pantsless, wrestlers lug out an ornate litter on which rests the Queen of Slamboree 1993, Fabulous Moolah. Her white, silver, and blue dress is very dignified, unlike the outfits, or lack thereof, of her carriers. Yes. <laughs> she takes her place near the other gathered legends in and around the ring, and we cut back to Max Payne to see him finish rocking out. He's He's quite good on the guitar, actually.
0: Yeah maybe do that instead of wrestling
1: yeah was never much of a fan of him in the ring from what i recall but on on the guitar yeah he's, he's good yeah so of course we cut to eric bischoff and missy hyatt before he's totally done and the sound just kind of fades out yeah <laughs> by the way i hope you enjoyed seeing our female guest because she never appears again yeah that was weird they like bring her out with a great deal of pomp and circumstance and then never do anything with her yeah Eric Bischoff's hair, by the way, looks much better tonight than the, in the AWA show we yeah.
0: watched. That was weird. It was like that he was died, so it was like he had dyed it blonde, and it was it faded to like gray. Yeah, I don't get
1: his look in there. It, it was it was so funny.
0: Next time he has one of those questionnaire things on his podcast, they will send him and see if he'll answer. What was your hair? Yeah. What what's going on in this picture? And the the helmet hair look too. That was oh, that was yeah. interesting. I mean, that's at least covered by the era.
1: Yes. Eric and Missy say hello to those watching, and Missy wishes friends well in Canada. Salut, eh? (laughs) Eric talks about Scott Norton, who got beaten up by the prisoner, and says the prisoner will face Sting tonight, as the spotlights go dead, leaving Eric and Missy cloaked in darkness. Eric tries to wait a moment or two for them to come back, but it becomes clear it isn't going to, so he moves on, asking Missy her thoughts on the match. Missy says, Sting was ready for someone else, but now has to wrestle this mysterious prisoner and has to prepare fast. Eric builds up the world title match as well, and name drops Cactus Jack and Ron Simmons as former Vader victims, as the lights come back on. Missy says that Bulldog's strength might make this a turning point for Vader. Talking about the upcoming tag title match, Missy notes that the Hollywood blondes are sexy, and she wants to join them for their entrances. Eric builds up some upcoming Legends matches and throws to our first match. So the first match is beautiful Bobby Eaton and Chris Benoit versus two cold Scorpio and Marcus
0: Alexander Bagwell. The referee for this one is Nick Patrick. They put Bagwell and Scorpio together because they really want to make something with Bagwell, obviously, because he's young, good looking, and they hope it'll all pan out. But he's not really great in the ring at this point, not that he gets amazing later, obviously, but uh, <laughs> but you need someone to work with him so he has someone to come and do the big flashy moves, he can come in and sort of essentially share the glory with them. Mm-hmm. So that's what Scorpio is there for. Eden and Benoit are kind of in a weird spot, because as we mentioned before, on previous shows, the other two-thirds of the Midnight Express left for Smoky Mountain. Right. Whereas Eden stayed. So he's kind of been moving around wherever they could use him. And basically him and Benoit are a good, solid heel team that can work a really strong match with people, but will always lose. Okay. Not, not, not to spoil the results <laughs> or anything. I will note that on the previous show, Super Brawl, there was a singles match between Benoit and Scorpio. So at least there is that. Okay. That sounds rather interesting. I do have to
1: disagree with you on one point, though, Al. Okay, go ahead. Uh, Bagwell does become amazing, Mm -hmm. amazingly punchable.
0: Oh, okay. (laughs) I mean, he's obviously one giant stupid hat away from being a big star. That's no question.
1: (laughs) Eaton's red and silver jacket looks nice, but it clashes a bit with his primarily yellow pants. Kind of a weird look.
0: Yeah, and Techie mixes his, his luggage up or something.
1: Yeah. Benoit did better color coordination with just black and white for both,
0: but the zebra pants are a tad odd. I will give him credit for something, though. Apparently, he did seem to get knee pads that actually were zebra print as well. Yes, yeah. Because you can see when close-ups later in the match that it's it's not all one solid pattern. So he got matching knee pads to go with his crazy zebra pants. Yeah, good, good coordination, not so good design. Right. He was clearly inspired by Zubas and thought, I should make my wrestling tights look like this.
1: <laughs> Bagwell and Scorpio's theme sounds like it's trying to rip off Gonna Make You Sweat, the uh, Everybody Dance Now song. Oh, yeah. Not very well, though. No. They do a kind of awkward, fancy high five and bounce around to the rhythm, and we get a terrific shot of the crowd where we see the pure disdain this one lady holds for their dance skills.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> we get a sign in the crowd that reads Maris, missing the C, is great. so at least we know that bagwell has one fan other than his mom judy she probably would have spelled his name right i would hope so yeah benoit and scorpio start us off tony and larry have a nice discussion about the experience of the two teams saying that eaton's the most experienced wrestler there but bagwell and scorpio have been a team for much longer scorpio dodges around benoit and flips him out of holds but Benoit dodges his strikes until Scorpio finally lands a dropkick and arm drag to make him retreat. Benoit kicks at Bagwell to distract the ref, and Eaton nails Scorpio from behind, and they whip him to the corner. Scorpio accidentally clips Eaton, jumping over a charge, but quickly recovers his balance and hits a rebound crossbody out of the other corner on Benoit for one, letting go early so Eaton will elbow drop Benoit. Bagwell and Scorpio clear the ring and awkwardly high-five. It never really... Goes quite right.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I feel like if they do it like four or five more times, it'll hit.
1: (laughs) Just need practice. Exactly. Despite the storyline being that they've been a team for longer. They
0: need lots of practice.
1: Yeah, yeah. Eaton and Bagwell face off next. Bagwell works the arm, but Benoit sneaks in a strike. Eaton charges, but Bagwell ducks, and Eaton goes over the top rope, which Patrick rules was accidental, so no DQ. That's a load of crap, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was clearly clearly intentional.
0: <laughs> it, it's yeah, it's this, it's the same like head-shoulder fake toss over the ropes that gets many people DQ'd in this yes. company. Yeah. Yeah, the DQ rules are, shall we say, sketchy
1: tonight. Yes. Scorpio and Bagwell fling the heels into each other, then we're back to Bagwell and Eaton. Benoit sneaks in another strike from behind and distracts Patrick, so Eaton flings Bagwell over the top rope to the floor back in, and Eaton hits a nice top rope knee drop, and Tony says that if that had hit Bagwell's throat, it would be a DQ. I've never heard of that, and aren't the DQ rules complex enough already? Yeah, I would think so. Benoit and Eaton earn two counts with a Benoit leg drop, back suplex, and neck breaker, and an Eaton knee drop, and Scorpio's protests of added leverage on a Benoit figure four a neck lock just give the heels more time for cheating. Benoit tries a swan dive headbutt, but Bagwell gets the knees up, so Bagwell makes the tag to Scorpio. All four get into brawl. Scorpio has to move the cameraman out of the way for a neat top rope rotating splash on Benoit for two, as Eaton breaks. Benoit holds Bagwell, but Bagwell dodges, and Eaton hits Benoit. Bagwell tackles Eaton out to the ramp, and Scorpio hits a flipping leg drop from the top for the three count and the win. Eaton grabs Patrick during the count, but Patrick just ignores him. I guess Bagwell was supposed to have Eaton further back, so he couldn't reach. That'd be my assumption as well, yeah. Yeah. Scorpio goes for another awkward high-five, but Bagwell doesn't even notice, so Scorpio just hugs him instead. (laughs) The replay shows that Scorpio landed butt-first on Benoit's nose, Mm. or, as Larry calls it, on his Shivani. Ouch. After a brief pause, Tony asks, on his what? Take it away, Larry says, ignoring the question.
0: <laughs> uh, thoughts on this one? That was a pretty solid match all around. There's not a whole lot of story here. As was going in, this isn't a blood feud. This isn't like a for a title or anything. So it's just four guys basically fighting for the win. So Bagwell, for his part, doesn't really match anything up. Other than the, like you said, getting even further away from the ring. Yeah. I didn't get any botches he really did, or like any miscues other than, again, his terrible attempt at doing high- five in sequence. Yes. The thing that works for the match for me is that they definitely use Scorpio a lot, because like I said said Leon, Scorpio was here to work the really good match with their buddy. So it's, it's good that they used him for that. Mm-hmm. Him and Benoit definitely have good chemistry together. I was this is why they put him back together a month or two after they just fought each other. I think they wrestled ECW later as well. I'd be surprised if they didn't. I think my only real critique with that match, other than the whole thing with the position, is that they do the, I'll hold him, you hit him. Oh no, he moved. Spot like, what, three times in this match? I could have done with like one less of that, maybe. Or even like some sort of play off of that. Like, they catch themselves, but then they get hit behind or something. The fact that it just, they had so many miscues felt very, I'd say very forced, maybe, (laughs) that way. Otherwise, it's a good match. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, Pretty good opener here. It had a fast pace, though there's a bit too much reliance on arm holds in the early going that makes it maybe not as quick a start as it could be, especially as the arm work goes basically nowhere. True. Yeah. Scorpio and Bagwell's friendship feels unnaturally choreographed, but both teams worked well together in the ring. While there aren't a lot of interesting tag-team-specific moves, the match had a good flow and some cool, if occasionally sloppy, acrobatics courtesy of Scorpio. Nothing broke any new ground here, it's a very standard tag match, but it was mostly executed well and the ending was fun, if likely rather painful for Benoit. Yeah. So it served its
0: purpose to me. I am just thinking it's funny having the Bagwell-Scorpio pairing is definitely going off of the cliché I started in the 80s with the... You know, black cop, white cop, uh part buddy buddy cop partner thing. the le- the lethal weapon? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the forty-eight hours, depending on your timeline. Yeah, yeah, true, true.
1: Is uh, is Scorpio too old for this?
0: uh, he is now for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it serves as a good show opener. That's what it's intended to do, and I think it does that job well. Yeah, I think for better or worse, the match definitely feels like it from nineteen ninety three. Yes. Combination of like, the colors, the way it's high flying, but not the more revolutionary high flying just yet. Yep. There's sort of hints of where it's going, but otherwise it's, it's very solid. Yeah. Bagwell and Scorpio would not get in rhythm, unsurprisingly, <laughs> but they would keep teaming up for the near future, doing so at Beach Blast. A short while after this, Benoit returned to working mostly in Japan, uh, which left Eden to find a new tag partner, but unfortunately, not a lot of uh, notoriety for it. You'd see him on shows a lot of time, but his status never seemed to go that far at this point.
1: Yeah, he seems to always be the guy that they pull out as he's a very reliable performer. Mm-hmm. But even though they seem to like him, they don't seem to want to give him anything big to do. Yes, which was always weird to me. It seemed like Eaton's Eaton's a very good wrestler, mm-hmm. and you really always thought he would have gotten farther than he than he did. It, which sounds weird to say because he's he's so famous as a tag guy. I think it's just when he does get that singles career, it never really goes much of anywhere, aside from one or two highlights here or there.
0: Yeah, there's there's hints early, earlier on that they're going somewhere with him. Like he gets to main event at Clash of Champions against Ric Flair, and you're like, oh, he's going somewhere. And then, uh, no. Yeah. And then it's him and Regal together, which is a good pairing, but is not designed for a big push, basically. Right. Yeah. You'll find this interesting, though. So, in 1994... There is a co-promoted show with ECW and WCW. They have uh, a little bit of a talent sharing going on at this point, because mm-hmm. they're trying to compete with WBF. So there's a tag match on that, which has the interesting team of Terry Funk and Arn Anderson, Ooh, grizzled dads, I said <laughs> <laughs> With with uh, Bobby Eaton and the last person new to Spectre team with Bobby Eaton, Sabu. That sounds bizarre. Yes kind of want to see that match now i i kind of do too yeah yeah
1: <laughs> i hope grizzled dad's is their actual team name that would be great it should be yeah absolutely should be tony builds up the appearances of colonel rob parker who's been looking for a superstar and was disappointed in van hammer
0: aren't we all <laughs> <laughs> that, that that seemed like the natural response you're waiting kind, for kind of did yeah okay good Tony says he had unkind
1: things to say about Van Hammer, but Larry says he was just giving advice, and Hammer was rude for putting his hands on someone smaller than him. Tony says that Parker has found his own athlete to face Hammer here in a special added match. So our second match is heavy metal Van Hammer versus a mystery opponent. And the referee for this one is Mike Atkins. Van Hammer comes out in a really basic black wrestling outfit, which just seems wrong for his name. Mm -hmm. Tony introduces Parker as, quote, a man who, much like yourself, Larry, doesn't know when to stop talking. (laughs) Larry is aghast. We're one for one, Tony notes. (laughs) Parker takes the mic and says that Hammer and he had a disagreement and Hammer assaulted him, bruising his feelings. Parker has the crew wheel out a gurney for Hammer to ride out on and introduces his wrestler the man that rules the world Sid Vicious big cheers for that actually Mm -hmm. Hammer destroys the gurney off camera and as he's climbing back in Vicious mostly misses a kick Hammer fires back with punches but Vicious kicks him, clotheslines him, and powerbombs him for the three count and the win (laughs) that was easy (laughs) That was brisk. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Thoughts on it?
0: This is just here to show that Sid is back.
1: Pretty much. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, I think it does do a good job of making Vicious look strong for his return to WCW with an extremely fast win. And I have no complaints about making a Vicious hammer match as short as possible. Yes. But still, they did manage to slip in a botch with the opening kick.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I will say not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but... Arguably, for me, two of the more disappointing matches on the show one is this one because it's so super short and also not good, mm-hmm. and then one that is way longer. <laughs> <laughs> so, we get the two extremes of quality on the show. Yeah, true.
1: It's kind of weird how much Vicious sells Hammer's punches, too, with how quickly Hammer ends up going down. I mean, I guess it's nice, but it makes it feel like Hammer should have been a bigger threat. Right. It does what it was meant to do, I guess, but I would have preferred they leave this to a TV show.
0: Right. It's one of the things where if it was done on a later show, like, you know, late 90s on Raw, for instance, they would have had Hammer in the backstage being interviewed by, you know, Kevin Kelly or somebody. Rob Parker would come in, you know, berate him for turning down his offer, and then the bishop would attack him, powerbomb him through a table, and they'd walk off.
1: Right, yeah, they wouldn't have done it as an actual match. Correct.
0: Sid would main event the next show, so his promotion's pretty quick. Okay. He had an impressive win over that that tough opponent, Van Hammer. Yes. (laughs) It's notable that the next show uh, that he's main eventing is a feature of the match that's far more famous in the build-up than the actual match itself. Mm. Now, the Van Hammer thing's interesting. As you can probably tell by the way he's being treated, he is not being pushed by the company at this point. Yeah he would actually just flat out leave the company when they gave him a offer for much less pay than he wanted. That would happen in July. But then, don't blame him. You're being beat up all the time. Might as well leave. Yeah, yeah. Now, here's the tricky thing, though. So this is the point where they're pre-taping a lot of stuff to save money. So Van Hammer's last actual appearance in WCW would be in September. <laughs> yes. They pre-taped so much content that he's appearing two months after he left the company. Wow, <laughs> that's uh, that's that's impressive. Yeah, yeah. He has longevity. Give him that. Yeah, yeah. True, true. You know, I think my Van Hammer. We mentioned the uh, Max Payne in the beginning was playing. I feel like maybe because they have both of them, one gets the really interesting outfit, mm-hmm. and poor Van Hammer just left with the black singlet, and then that's it. Maybe they were like, "Well, this
1: guy can actually play a guitar." Yes. <laughs> so we'll give him the outfit and and the entrance and the pyro and everything like that and you um well we gave you a rock kind of name but you you can't actually do anything particularly rock so we'll just admit it
0: yeah (laughs) he is the dynamic dudes of rock characters (laughs) yeah pretty much yes (laughs) they should have put him together like they did uh double j and the roadie in wbf Like, have him him be, like, the bodyguard, you know, bouncer character. Oh, no, dude, they should have had uh, Van Hammer comes out with
1: a guitar and pretends he's playing it, and it's it's actually Max Payne. Oh. And that's eventually revealed, leading to a big feud in which the guitar playing would be awesome, but the match not so much.
0: Yes. (laughs) To quote a famous film tagline, whoever wins, we lose. (laughs) We cut to
1: Eric Bischoff, who is with Red Bastion, Who has an amazing mustache and beard. Oh, yeah. And Bugsy McGraw. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't seen Bugsy since Starcade 83. Yeah. Red says he's glad he's not wrestling anymore because Vicious proves that today's wrestlers are bigger and stronger. McGraw mugs for the camera and turns side to side, never quite looking at the camera. He says Vicious is one of the most awesome looking wrestlers he's ever seen. And then finally looks at the camera so he can, quote, look pretty for them. He says Eric has too much makeup on, but Red says that Eric wears it well. <laughs> <laughs> Eric throws back to the ring. It's nice to see the legends having a good time here, sometimes at Eric's expense. Yeah. <laughs> and both did a very
0: good job building up Vicious. Sure, absolutely. It's just kind of a shame they're wasting all this, all this effort on Vicious, but hey. Yeah, yeah. Do what you gotta do.
1: Our third match is a Legends six-man tag, featuring Dirty Dick Murdoch, Magnificent Don Miraco, and Superfly Jimmy Snuka, versus Chief Wahoo McDaniel, Blackjack Mulligan, and Jumpin' Jim Brunzel. The referee for this one is Randy Anderson. Uh, note before we begin on this one, we've already mentioned Dick Murdoch's history and allegations that he was a KKK member on this show. Yes. Back when he showed up at WrestleWar War 89. We also have to mention Jimmy Snuka here, who was charged in 2016 with third-degree murder and involuntary manslaughter for the death of his girlfriend, Nancy Argentino, 32 years prior. Snuka pleaded not guilty and was ultimately ruled mentally unfit to stand trial, and passed away in 2017, leaving the case unresolved. So, as we sometimes have to say, a reminder that our comments and thoughts on this show are about the characters portrayed and the performances given on air, not about the personal lives of the performers. Correct. With that said,
0: we'll move on. hmm At this point, ECW is Eastern Championship Wrestling. They haven't had their big breakaway-become-ECW-Extreme-Championship Wrestling moment yet. So, notable that their current champion at this point is Don Morocco. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Not come out wearing that belt, though, which is kind of disappointing, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he was the ranked champion at the time of the show. Okay. Okay, that's cool.
1: We get some very nice black and white photos and video clips during the entrances. Thought it was a nice touch to show the histories of these characters. And Mulligan's face shot is epic, with him glaring wide-eyed at the camera like he's afraid it's going to steal his soul. Which <laughs> <laughs> is it was, it was great. It cracked me up. Brunzel and Snuka start us off. The team members trade in and out, in various combinations, doing basic strikes and holds. Mulligan gets some of the biggest cheers. There's a funny spot as a disoriented Murdoch goes to the wrong corner and later tries to retreat, but is stopped by Wahoo. Larry compliments Tony on rattling off loads of details about the wrestlers' careers and says that he knows things from before Larry was born. Tony notes, that was a long time ago. That's a berm. That's a pretty lazy burn, to be fair. <laughs> Two to one, Larry mutters. <laughs> <laughs> Wahoo in, and as he chops Morocco, Larry makes a questionable comment about his, quote, Indian blood. <sighs> Wahoo makes the mistake of chasing Morocco into his corner and gets triple teamed. Tony name-drops Rufus R. Freight Train Jones for another Starkate 83 moment. Yes. <laughs> I think you and I both popped for that on the- That was very surprising, yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. great. Eventually, Wahoo gets free to tag Brunzel, who hits a nice dropkick as Tony notes he lives up to his Jumpin' Jim moniker. Murdoch hits a surprising flying head scissors as Larry asks how he could get his stomach up that high. hmm <laughs> Morocco in to overpower Brunzel as Larry notes that these are some of the toughest men in the world, and he's proud to be one of them. <laughs> Tony screws up Larry's nickname, so Larry says it's two to two, you stumbling idiot.
0: <laughs> Poor Shivani thought he got a night off when yeah. Ventura was gone, but nope. <laughs> Brunzel manages a tag to Wahoo, but
1: Anderson didn't see it, so he sends Wahoo back out. Brunzel dodges a Morocco clothesline and Morocco hits Snuka, so the two have words. Murdoch, Morocco, and Snuka wear down Brunzel with a one count off a Murdoch elbow drop, but Brunzel gets two off a high crossbody to Morocco and a roll up on Snuka. Brunzel dodges a Snuka charge, so Snuka hits Morocco, and despite having done the exact same thing to Snuka, Morocco is incensed. Wahoo inexplicably gets in to roll up Snuka. I'm not sure what was going on there. As Brunzel rolls up Morocco, and Anderson counts two even though neither combo has both legal men. Brunzel and Snuka are legal. Everyone into brawl, and it's gotten two out of control, so Anderson calls for the belt. The match is ruled a no contest, but the fight goes on. Brunzel hurls Morocco into a Wahoo chop. Snuka gets back in, and Wahoo whips him to the ropes and chops him, prompting Snuka to seemingly ignore the chop and hurl himself forward at the ropes beyond to go butt over tea
0: kettle to the outside in one of the strangest spots I have ever seen. It's a delayed reaction. The chop reprogrammed his brain temporarily. I guess so. It it overrode his uh, fight or flight uh, instinct. Yes. So he had to escape the ring as quickly as possible. Larry
1: says that Snuka knocked his monitor off the table in the process, and you do hear kind of a thud as he he comes out of the ring there. Mulligan decks Snuka as Tony throws to the next segment thoughts on this one
0: it was okay um decent action the thing with this match is, is there's six people so they can keep people tagging in and out no one stays in real long trying to work a hold that much or trying to go over several minutes at a time because obviously they can't you know right right not to say that they can't perform at this point they definitely just can't perform the same level they used to and then uh, it's just a fact of life you know it yeah. happens Yeah, it happens yeah exactly. But yeah, I think this is, it's a pretty good use of all these people, even if the assemblage is kind of random. The way they pick the teams doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me at all. There's, there's
1: no uh, rhyme or reason to why people are on different teams, as far as I can tell. They do mention some tension between, uh, I think it's Morocco, Murdoch, and Snuka. Right. But
0: that's about it. Because this is like a one-off Legends match... There's not a storyline here. So it's not like, oh, these are all heels. I don't get along. It's just one team is heels because that's how matches work generally. Right. I do question why there's not an actual finish given that nobody actually worked for the company.
1: Yeah. What do they have to lose? Probably was one of those cases where just no one would say yes. (laughs) Yeah. I guess so. Yeah, I, I think I'm in agreement. This was decent enough. It's clear these guys are not in their best shape anymore, but they seem to give it their best and kept the match within the bounds of their capabilities, while still trying to keep things moving and pull out what moves they could. Brunzel looked quite good, mm-hmm. yeah, and Murdoch had some surprising moves that I wouldn't have guessed him capable of in his prime, much less in 1993.
0: Yeah, that I don't think he did that head-scissors move when we last saw no, him, and that no. was four years ago. he early. did basically nothing last time we saw him. Yeah. <laughs> Other than hogtie Bob Warden seniors,
1: Yeah, and wear his boot for a punch, which was weird. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, and that was four years ago, like you were saying, so it was a pretty good performance from him, honestly. Morocco got to show off his strength very well as well, including a tremendous stalling slam at one point. Mm-hmm, yeah. The rest didn't make much of an impression in the match, but they still participated enough to have some fun with it, and it didn't overstay its welcome. hmm I agree with you that the no contest ending is bad, but there's not really a story for it to spoil. Right. No. Yeah. Overall, I like this quite a bit more than I expected I
0: would. Yeah. I will say it's weird to have Snuka in a match and not even tease like his big splash move. Yeah,
1: he does a standing one, but not one from the top rope ever.
0: Yeah. I would have thought that'd be like the breakup for the hot tag. Like he tries to do his big splash and misses, and then the yeah, thing breaks up, or do it at the end for the beatdown. But no. I was surprised at how little Snuka actually is
1: involved in the match, yeah. for that matter. He seems like Murdoch, I think, is in much longer.
0: And if I were taking bets on which of them would be in for longer, it would have been Snuka. Yeah. Because I think as far as being active at this point, obviously, Morocco, as I've mentioned, he's the ECW champion. Yeah. Snuka, I believe, is fairly active in that organization as well. He's in a lot of early ECW shows. Yeah, so I just forget because I think of ECW as the extreme championship wrestling Forgetting the transition they went through.
1: Yeah, that kind of gets lost because of what they become right. and how different it is.
0: I think in Murdoch's case, um, this is part of him training for a big wrestling comeback, so maybe that's why he's in longer. He, he's like, I right, no guys, I can keep going. I, and maybe that's why he does the head scissors just show he, he, so that he can, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's a decent format for having all these people in the match, I'll say that.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: Murdoch uh, mentioned was training for wrestling come back, so he kept appearing for other companies, including WWF, And he would actually appear at another WCW show we'll cover in a little bit, for better or for worse. Morocco is obviously still active at this point. He's the super champion, as mentioned a couple times. Uh, He would keep working in and a great company called War in Japan. (laughs) Snicker would mainly work ECW shows. However, he would have a random one-off Nitro appearance in 2000. Huh. It surprised me to find that out, too. <laughs> As for Wahoo, he would keep working until 1995. He'd finally retire. Brinzel would work until 1999. But this officially is Blackjack Mulligan's final match. Ah, I mean, I think he basically came out of semi-retirement for this match, so it's like, he's like yeah, like is a good place to stop. And it, it's not a bad way to go. I think it's, we both said, it's a perfectly
1: decent, you know, showcase for these six people. So, if this is your final, then, you know, it's not epic, but... It's a it's a very welcome match.
3: Yeah,
0: sure. They're worse ways to go in wrestling for sure. Absolutely.
1: We go back to Missy Hyatt, who is with Assassin Number One, who's now just the Assassin, and Mad Dog Vashon. The Assassin does not count as a Starkate eighty three reference purely, as he continued to appear briefly afterwards. Right. And he ran the Amanda in like nineteen ninety, wasn't he? Uh yeah, I think so. Vashon growls about being a wrestling legend and then pauses for quite a while. So Missy turns to the assassin only for Vashon to grab the mic and say he wasn't quite done. He regrets not being in the six-man match and wants to teach them what it's like to wrestle. He says, it's a dog-eat-dog world. Assassin says the action has been tremendous and challenges Dusty Rhodes to a fight. (laughs) No, thank you. I'm not sure if Missy and Vashan were doing a bit there, or if that was an actual flub, because Vashon just paused for so long. It was weird. It,
0: it feels like an actual flub. Yeah. like she, She's like, I think he's done? Yeah, he yeah. just kind of stands there staring at the screen for a bit. <laughs> and if I was in her place, I would have done the same thing. Yeah, me too.
1: Yeah, I would have been like, oh, okay, that's clearly all he meant to say. Yes. Bit of a weird one, and it's strange to see Assassin kind of try to start up a feud in 1993 as well.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now maybe if he can get his son to referee the match, he would have a good chance. <laughs> yes, I was hoping that that would somehow be referenced. Yeah, I don't think that
1: ever actually gets referenced on screen ever. Yeah, that uh, Patrick is is uh, his son.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't think so either. Yeah,
1: yeah, that would be awesome. That would be. someone just said, well, of course he's the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. Our fourth match is another Legends match. This is Ivan Koloff and Baron Von Roch versus Thunderbolt Patterson and Bullet Bob Armstrong. The referee for this one is the Assassin's Kid, Nick Patrick.
0: <laughs> they had Thunderbolt Patterson appear on one of the Saturday nights leading up to this, promoting the show. And then they had Koloff and Baron Von Roch blah 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 blah. basically challenge him to a fight and you know set up a thing. But that's pretty much it, uh, as far as the actual story goes. <laughs> I love that both of us have just given up saying that name. Oh, yeah. I did find a historical, though. You might find interesting, Bob. Okay. So, in the mid-'80s, Patterson was wrestling in a regional territory, I believe it's Georgia. And he had a tag partner was Ole Anderson. And as you can probably guess, Ole turns heel. Yeah. And so he doesn't need Thunderbolt Patterson anymore, Bring his new tag partner, Arn Anderson. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the angle they brought Arn into wrestling. That is, that's pretty notable there yeah yeah for a guy we've never seen on a show before and probably won't ever again it's <laughs> interesting he has that connection there
1: yeah yeah did you catch in the uh entrance promos who was in the footage of the baron i don't recall no he's actually shown fighting the road warriors really in his promo video yeah he puts the claw on hawk
0: i i missed that then yeah
1: yeah yeah i, I didn't catch it when we were watching it together but i'm rewatching wait a second <laughs> So that must be when they were in the AWA, I would imagine. That would
0: make sense, yeah.
1: Interestingly, they call uh, the Baron Master of the Claw in this match, but there's a point in the prior match where they call uh, Blackjack Mulligan Master of the
0: Claw. (laughs) Sadly, there wasn't a Claw face-off match. (laughs) Yes, sadly. (laughs) Thunderbolt Patterson gets
1: huge cheers. Yeah. But he comes out on his own. Patterson says that Bob Armstrong had an operation on his knee, so he's going to fight on his own. Koloff says that Armstrong should be called Weak Stomach, because the Armstrongs are cowards. <laughs> the Baron grabs the microphone and agrees, and claims that Bob Armstrong is faking. That cues Brad Armstrong, Bullet Bob's son, to run down to the ring to be Patterson's partner and defend his dad's honor. Patterson tells him, take your shirt off and kick some butt. <laughs> Patterson and Armstrong beat up the Baron and Koloff, respectively, including a beautiful Armstrong dropkick. Oh, was a very nice dropkick, yeah. Koloff and Baron retreat, and Koloff shouts that Armstrong has no right to be here. The match proper starts with Patterson versus Baron, and Patterson moves erratically, forcing Baron to the corners and easily slipping free of headlocks. Larry points out that Patterson's movements throw off the Baron's timing, which I thought was a great bit of commentary. Yeah, yeah. Koloff in, and Patterson tags Armstrong, but Koloff almost immediately gets the advantage with a snapmare leg drop and choking, and brings in the Baron for one of the weakest double-team back elbows I have ever seen, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) which Armstrong generously sells anyway. Baron grabs the hair and runs Armstrong into turnbuckles, building to the claw. Larry explains Baron's technique and how he's putting pressure on Armstrong's neck with his other hand to latch it in more solidly. Again, really great commentary there. Patterson breaks it up. Tagged to Koloff, but Armstrong dives to tag Patterson, who takes out both heels with rapid-fire punches. In a pretty fun spot, you can see Armstrong nodding along with a really big punch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I that. Yeah, so he's kind of cheering him on. It's great. Armstrong and Patterson miss time throwing the heels into each other, as Armstrong just barely gets a hold of the Baron when Koloff slams into him. Yeah. <laughs> looks pretty awkward. Armstrong keeps Koloff in the corner with punches, as Patterson takes the Baron down with a slow cross-chop for the three-count and the win. Armstrong and Patterson celebrate, as Baron seems to
0: accuse Koloff of not being there to help him.
1: Thoughts on this one?
0: It's a pretty decent match, all things considered. It goes about, what, four minutes, I think? Something like that? Um, yeah, somewhere in that range. It's pretty basic. They work through the whole, the general tag partner in trouble, guy comes and save him, hot tag win the match thing, and fairly record time, especially given the speed of three of the four competitors in the match. Yes, I will say, Patterson's like, whole demeanor is really interesting. I've never seen before. I would be curious to see older matches of him, when he's more physically in his prime, and see, like, assuming he does that same sort of thing, like, what he's like when he can work a regular match.
1: Absolutely. He has a ton of personality. Yeah. So I would be very interested to see how is he able to handle the wrestling side of it earlier in his career when he's, like you said, when he's He's a little bit younger and has a little bit more um, ability to do the physicality. Yeah. Though he, d- though he does fairly nice punches uh, in this match still.
0: No, yeah. The switch out kind of interesting because it's, I'm curious how much time they knew in advance about Armstrong. Me too. I feel like you had to have known a while ago. It's no like surprise you're getting, you're getting knee surgery. You planned that out for like a while, I would think. Mm-hmm. Unless, I mean, if it was an injury while he was training or something possibly. Possible. Yeah, that. that's very possible. It throws out the dynamic of the "let's have the legends all fight each other" thing, when right in the middle is Brad Armstrong. Yes, who can probably vertically leap over everyone in the match. Yes,
1: <laughs> he he is a legend to us, though largely for the America jacket, which at some point I swear will make an appearance.
0: Yes, <laughs> if he had been like planned as the hag partner, he would have had it, Bob.
1: Yes. It was in his bag, but you know, he had to rush out so quickly. He couldn't. Put there you or go. Or maybe he left it with his dad to give him strength at the hospital.
0: Oh, there you go. <laughs> You'll heal twice as fast if you were this during the recovery period. Yeah. 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 Makes perfect sense. <laughs> in general, because it's so short, it doesn't take around long enough for anyone to really botch anything other than, the, you mentioned the little dozy dough, um, throw them into each other by the little miss time. But yeah. it still works as a spot. Yeah, they still hit fine. It's just, yeah, yeah. you can tell Armstrong is like, wait, we're throwing now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The finish is kind of weird to make. it It's so abrupt. Unless that is Patterson's finisher, again, have never seen him before. Watching the show the way most people would have not, probably not knowing who he is, like the younger fans watching it. feels was like, oh, that's that's it? I That's your big move? Yeah. Okay. I feel like that's probably his move, but mm-hmm.
1: I, I can't say for sure.
0: Yeah. And make one of thing like if you never watched Dusty Road, for instance, and suddenly he hits someone with the bonnet elbow, you'd be like, oh. Yeah. I mean they think that, all that move looks cool, but it's not what you expect the finisher to be. Exactly, yeah. But yeah, this is short enough to basically cover the shortcomings for three of the four people here. I think it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was pretty good fun to
1: me. Uh Patterson in particular, as I said, was really entertaining to watch. He got really creative with his movements, and I loved Larry taking the time to highlight the strategy in that. Baron and Koloff did respectively, though Koloff somewhat more so than Baron. Baron's strikes look a little wispy, and that back elbow spot looked pretty awful. and that was yes. entirely his fault. <laughs> yes. There's a missed time spot here or there, but the match had a really good pace. So my only real complaint is that after the opening moments, Armstrong really just spends the whole match getting beaten up. Yeah. Now, the point of the match is to let the older wrestlers show their stuff, so it makes sense. Yeah. But it definitely made him look weaker than I would have liked, just because I really like Brad Armstrong.
0: Yeah, it's possible maybe they didn't rebook most of the match. Maybe he's just filling in Bullet
1: Bob's spots. Yeah. Yeah. But still you would think that Bullet Bob would have gotten one or two points to show off. Yeah, yeah. Too, and it doesn't really seem like there's that much of that in the match. Mm-hmm. The biggest compliment I can give this match, though, is that other than maybe the lack of Brad Armstrong offense, it's hard to tell that this match was originally supposed to feature a different Armstrong to me. That's true. Yeah, yeah. It, it felt like a perfectly acceptable nostalgic tag match despite that, mm-hmm. and that's
0: pretty impressive. Yeah. Thunderbolt Patterson would officially retire uh, later in this, that same year, 1993. Okay. One of his last projects was mentoring Ice Train, oh. who we'll see later. And in fact, we saw earlier in the show, he was one of the front people bringing in, that was Mula. Yes, yeah. The only one I recognized from that procession of random Speedo-clad people was <laughs> him. You know, I can see
1: the, um, the, the mentorship. He tries to do that larger personality. Oh, yeah.
0: You can see that being maybe a factor of Patterson's mentoring. For sure, yeah. Think of Ivan off, actually. He had his final match quite a bit later. <laughs> his is the main thing to note, though. So, his final match would be against Bullet Bob Armstrong. Okay. It would also be in 2013. Whoa.
1: Yes. <laughs> so, clearly, Bullet Bob came back from knee surgery fine. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> wow.
0: 2013. Okay. Yeah. So, 20 years after the show, he finally get the payoff to the, all that build of Bullet Bull Ar- Armstrong. I, I
1: hope that they mentioned it. That, that would that would yeah. have been so great if they had like a promo is like, oh, you're finally facing me after you ducked me at Slamboree. Yeah, you've been ducking me for two decades, man. <laughs> we go back to Tony and he says that people are excited because Ric Flair has said that he will reunite the original four horsemen at Slamboree and he throws to Flair's show titled A Flair for the Gold. Another Starcade 83 reference. Take a shot. Yes.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a special live edition of A Flair for the Gold with your host, Nature Boy, Rick Flair, also featuring Fifi the May. Tonight, the original four horsemen will be reunited. And now, here he is, Nature Boy!
1: Flair for the gold even has its own video intro complete with cheesy talk show music and a pretty sweet logo. Love it.
0: Yeah. I was getting real. Um, America's finance on videos vibes from it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I okay, can we'll see, see that. Yep. Okay. Good. Yeah. Yep. I was trying to think what it reminded me of. I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So from what I understand, Flair had returned from the WWF in February, but his WWF contract restricted him from actually wrestling for a competitor for a few months. So he was given this talk show concept until he could compete again. Correct. Aside from tonight, A Flare for the Gold is probably most famous for hosting the debut of the Shockmaster later (laughs) in 1993 in an iconic bit of unintentional comedy. Oh, yeah. We cut to the stage where Flare for the Gold's set has been set up. It looks like the interior of a house, complete with tiled floor, some windows with a fake city skyline beyond, a nicely appointed living room area, a bar, and a windowed doorway through which our host, Rick Flair, enters. It's actually a rather nice set, albeit one that looks more sitcom than talk
0: show. Yeah, again, that's where I'm getting a lot of the America's Friendship video yeah. thing. Yeah. for yeah. sure. Although it does actually, in a weird way, sort of inspire the In Your House setup a bit.
1: Yeah, yeah, fair, fair enough, yeah.
0: We see several ladies reclining on the couch.
1: Flair enters and announces that they're live in Atlanta, GA. (laughs) Flair says he's going to reunite the four horsemen, but there's good news and bad news. But first, he has to bring out Fifi the Maid, who struts out and does a spin. Fifi the Maid would much, much later be Flair's fifth wife. Yes. They married in 2018. Hi, John, somebody says. I think it's Larry welcoming Johnny Valentine, who's going to help commentate on the next match. <laughs> Flair brings out Arn Anderson, who comes out in a very nice tux and wonderful dad glasses. Mm-hmm.
2: Without further ado, let me bring out the man who will soon be the next NWA World Heavyweight Champion! My best friend, the enforcer, Double-A, Arne Anderson! Double-A, you are styling and profiling tonight. Something going on, brother? Well, Rick, as you know, Barry Windham has been snubbing you. He's been snubbing the horsemen. He's even been snubbing this show. But Barry Windham, in a short while, and I mean, in a short while, you're not going to be able to snub me. This is my shot, my one shot. And rest assured, as you look in these eyes, I'm going to make it good. I guess what he's saying there is, after tonight, B.W., you and these girls over here be calling Double A the champ, brother. That's the way it is. Now, nah, Double A, you know.
1: Flair says there was a little bad news and blames Barry Wyndham for Tully Blanchard not showing up. Flair says not to get down, but the show only gets bigger and better. He sends Aaron off to join the girls and warns him not to drink until after his match.
0: <laughs> now, do you want me to cover why Tully's actually not here? I believe they just couldn't come to terms on a payment, if I recall correctly. Yeah, basically what happened is they offered him a $500 per appearance contract.
1: Yes. To show up, and he said no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but who knows, maybe Barry Wyndham called him and said, no, Tully, that's not enough. Kayfabe, kayfabe can be true. I said. I guess. Horn yeah. <laughs> goes and sits at the bar instead. Flair brings out the Horseman's mentor, the legend, Oli Anderson, also in tuxedo, which he seems quite proud of.
2: The next Horseman is a man who generally is a legend in his own time. Our mentor, my cousin, the legend, Oli Anderson. All right. hey. Brother! You know, what's hey, the occasion, Ole? I tell you what, I'm all dressed up for a party with you. I gotta be dressed. But I didn't I tell you before, I said you can't trust Wyndham. And Wyndham got to that other kid, Tully. And I'll tell you what, it makes me hot. I've said it time and again you gotta watch him. You can't trust him. Well, Ole, listen, I said this to you. Take a look around behind you one time, Rock. It's ten-hours, Aid! It's a flare for the gold. You forget about Tully. Forget about where we are going to have a seat right there, brother. Get your feet wet, because the party's going to keep right on rocking.
0: <laughs> <laughs> There's a pool there. Get getting your feet wet.
1: All <laughs> yeah. reaction to seeing the ladies on the couch is great. The, hey! It's <laughs> just like <laughs> over-the-top comedic reactions. Great. A little bit, yeah. Flair moves on, introducing his special addition to the Horsemen, their newest member, Pretty Paul Roma. Huge boos to that oh, As a betuxed Paul Roma walks out
2: <laughs> The newest member Of the Four Horsemen Is legitimately one of those Kiss-dealing, and dealing limousine Limousine-riding Jet-flying son-of-a-gun That girls have kissed y'all And made you cry I'm talking about none other than Styling and profiling Pretty Paul Roma Come on out here, Paul. Hey, the he not fit the demographic? Keep screaming, girls, don't be ashamed of it. Paul, welcome, brother, to the Horseman. Thank you, it's a pleasure. You know, I don't think these people really realize the thousands of wrestlers you had to choose from, and you chose me to be a part of the most supreme elite group in professional wrestling today. The symbol that stands for, and always will be, Excellent. Hey, it's the four horsemen. Paul, we got Fifi on our left, and we got the girls over here on our right. But before we get the party going, let me lay one thing down. Pillman, Austin, you want the your boy, you got him. Because the tights are coming back out. And as, as the sun sets in the west, we're going to rock and roll because the horsemen Woo! Are we united again? All right. Nah. Hey, hey. Now, now, hey, now, guys, hey, Double A, you gotta escape. The party's over here. Hello, girls. It's out, huh?
1: The four horsemen give the horsemen sign and go to party. Though, as you can hear, a flair could be heard admonishing Anderson again not to drink. <laughs> Thoughts on this segment?
0: It's good until the end. <laughs> it's probably the, based on the crowd reaction Is their feeling as well Yeah, Fla- Flair
1: does his best, I think To build up Roma, but That's clearly not what the crowd was hoping
0: for Yes The thing with Paul Roma is just Everything about him should make sense for him being the horseman, but Just as his career at that point doesn't Really fit that
3: mm-hmm.
0: Even outside of like His status, you know, he was Never like a big top guy, he was always in tag teams Even when he was in that position, he wasn't, like, one of the guys who were just waiting for his big moment to come. Like, just wait, give him a push, and he'll be the biggest star in the world. Yeah. I mean, he thought that, I'm sure, but based on interviews you hear, he definitely thought that. (laughs) But if this is, like, going to take this raw talent and make him this big star, it's not what people wanted, clearly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was a really fun segment overall. Flair has his usual huge personality, and it's easy to see how he could carry a concept like this regularly. Oh, yeah. And Arn and Oli play their parts very well. Arn is Mr. Serious since he has a match, but Oli was pretty funny, acting like the poor peasant character in a film who's suddenly come into wealth. <laughs> yeah. He's strutting around in his nice new clothes. hmm It's weird because he's been hanging with Flair for years. <laughs> <But> <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Apparently he's new to it still. <laughs> Like you said, Al, Roma did not get a good reception from the crowd, and he didn't really seem natural interacting with the others, though, admittedly, they've had far more practice working with each other. Sure. It's just like, Flair, Arn, and Oli seem like they're just buds hanging out, and Roma's cutting a wrestling promo, and just happens to be on stage with them at the time. He does a perfectly fine job with the promo, though. It just seems almost tacked on, which is probably because it kind of was as WCW did intend to get Tully back, but as we said, couldn't make a deal with him. Mm-hmm. This version of the Four Horsemen is often considered a low point for the group, but this segment was pretty great, at least.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, not knowing at this point where it's going to go, it's it's a decent sort of redebut for the group, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're caught in a bit
1: of a, a hard place because, partially their own fault, they can't get Tully. Mm-hmm. So they're clearly going with plan B, but... I think they do a fair enough job of it. Sure, we can't judge based on what happens in the future. Right, right, yeah. At this moment, I think it's it's a it's a decent setup. Right. If Roma can prove
0: himself, I think he has a chance to win the crowd over. Sure. But we'll see what happens. (laughs) Yeah, it's a tricky thing with the horseman concept because they built so much of mythos around key people like Arn and Flair, obviously, but even other people like later in addition like like Wyndham. You think of the horsemen, you think of them. But yeah, there's a long history before and after this, and them constantly bringing in young wrestlers mm-hmm. to try and keep things going. And some work short-term, like Luger worked fine short-term. Yep. Obviously, it wasn't that long-term plan. Some were very short-term, like Sting. Yes. <laughs> and obviously, there's some, I think, looking back at it work better, like when we get with Malenko and um, Benoit, mm-hmm. the horsemen. They absolutely make sense in that part. Looking back at it, it's not surprising that they would try and experiment with Roma. Looking at him, I could see why you would pick him, just purely from aesthetic standpoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just
1: out of curiosity, like who who do you think if you're you're in the back room, they've just come to you and said, Oh crap, we can't get Tully, who do you pull in? That's in the company right then.
0: Ooh, that's a tricky one. Um Yeah. I mean, I would have thought someone if we didn't have him on the on the show earlier, someone like like Eden, for instance, would make a great pick for that. I could see that. Yeah. And you, you could highlight his accolades and basically push the idea that being the horseman is this new, fresh start. Like we talked before, him trying to get a chance to break away and be successful without the Man press mm-hmm. That would make a lot of sense. Plus, he's already blonde. That helps, too. <laughs> I know that... I don't personally enjoy
1: the guy, but if they wanted to do a horseman reunion that would also be a nice shocking return, this would have been a good place to bring back vicious. Oh yeah, that's true. I think that would have that would have gotten a really neat reaction. Yeah. To have him suddenly show up, oh crap, he's back. You know, don't do the earlier match, just have this be where he suddenly shows up again.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Um that that could have been interesting. No, I can see that as well. I will say I think The idea they're going for throughout this show and going forward is that the horsemen are going to be a face group. True, true. And Sid can be a face, but we've seen Sid as a face. Uh, I don't know if that works.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I think if you have him as the strong, silent, butt-kicking face character... No, yeah. Then then it could work and have Flair as kind of the mouthpiece. Don't have Sid have to talk about the size of his brain. Yes. (laughs) But yeah, I just... I think that's an interesting thought experiment is like everyone kind of criticizes the Roma pick, but I don't know how many people there are at this period that aren't already busy with something right? that you could bring in. There are some selections, obviously, but um, I, I don't know that they necessarily have this deep well that they can be choosing from for an emergency backup. Yeah. So they kind of they roll the dice with them, and I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad decision to do that.
0: Yeah. I could see maybe um even though they got them thing going temporarily, if you wanted to bring in Austin and Pillman, mm-hmm. bring in the two younger, respected wrestlers, you know, have Arn and Flair and then them. I think that could Yeah. Be- I think the only problem with
1: that is it sounds like Flair's at odds with them at the moment. Right. From his promo, so they'd have to engineer some story around that pretty fast. Yeah, no for sure. We cut back to the announce table where Tony and Larry have been joined by Johnny Valentine, who Tony introduces as the greatest United States champion of all time. Johnny, who has an incredibly deep voice, Mm -hmm. says that he's never seen so much talent in one building. He says they're about to see some old timers wrestle. And Tony says Johnny will join them for commentary for Dory Funk Jr. versus Nick Bockwinkel. Tony throws to a promo for Beach Blast 93. Unusually, there's no narration in the video package, so Tony just carries on doing it himself. (laughs) I've not seen that happen too often. Yeah, that's true. We've still got the wonderful fist-shaped wave logo, which is brilliant.
0: Oh, I love that one, yeah.
1: Our fifth match is a Legends singles match. Dory Funk Jr., that's Terry Funk's brother... With Gene Kaniski, another Starcade 83 reference. (laughs) Yeah. Versus Nick Bockwinkle with Vern Gagne. The referee for this match is Mike Atkins. Kaniski actually looks better here than he did at Starcade 83 a decade prior. That's true, yeah. Dory Funk looks, um, less so. (laughs) Yeah. I think they're trying to make it look like Kaniski is pumping him up for the match, but it honestly looks like Kaniski is guiding him around by the arm.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It does look like that, yeah.
1: And Funk's only 52 here. Yeah, yeah. But it makes him look so much older. Yeah. Funk, incidentally, has the second longest NWA World Heavyweight Championship reign. Uh, The longest would be Luthes. Right, yeah. They picked a terrific picture of Bockwinkle for the video package. It looks really dignified, him smiling and holding a title belt that I would assume is the AWAs. That would make sense, yeah. Tony notes that this is AWA versus NWA with Bockwinkle versus Funk. Valentine says that these men have wanted to face each other for years. (laughs) As they start off, Larry immediately points out that he was the last AWA world champion. Yes. He also says that if the AWA and NWA champs fought, the AWA would have won. Bachwinkle, as AWA champ, did actually face then-NWA champ Ric Flair in 1986. Oh. It ended in a double countout. I'm not shocked at all. No, me neither. Bachwinkle slips free of an early lockup, so Kaniski amusingly offers his towel to the ref, implying that Bachwinkle might have put on Vaseline or something to make himself slippery. <laughs> Tony notes that Dory Funk won his NWA title from Kaniski. And Bockwinkel won his first AWA title from Ganya. So that's interesting that they're the cornermen then. Yeah, yeah. As Bockwinkel evades another lockup, Funk goes to consult Kaniski. Funk and Bockwinkel trade a few blows and transition to trading holds. A Funk takedown into a neck vice looked pretty sloppy, though the hold itself was neat. A nice slam by Funk to escape an armbar later, though. Tony chats with Johnny Valentine about a time when he'd offered a fistful of silver dollars if anyone could pin him. Tony really sounds like he's having a good time tonight. I'm guessing these are the guys that he was a fan of before he got into the business. Yeah. So he's absolutely full of facts and stories about them. Funk gets one off an elbow and punches, but eats hard forearm shots from Bockwinkle, only for Kaniski to pull Bockwinkle away. Bockwinkle chases briefly, but goes back in. One counts off a Funk front face lock. Bockwinkle reversal and funk bellied back suplex back to the holds and the crowd seems to be turning on the match somewhat five minutes left in the time limit as Bockwinkle fights to free himself from a double arm hold snapmare by Bockwinkle for two wait wait off a snapmare yeah yeah. have you ever seen that before Uh, not really no (laughs) Johnny notes that they haven't been breaking any rules you hear that, Larry? Tony asks. No, Larry says.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> they end up on the ramp. Atkins prevents some Kanisky interference. Funk suplexes Bockwinkle back into the ring for two, and hits a dangerous-looking pile driver. But Bockwinkle's foot is on the ropes. We get what actually sounds a little bit more like a Dory chant as they picked up the pace a bit. I think earlier there was a boring one, but this one I, I felt like actually was Dory. There definitely was a boring one, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. Bockwinkel counters a double underhook suplex into a backslide for two. Funk spinning toehold, but Bockwinkel rolls him up for two. A rather poor Bockwinkel figure four, and Kaniski kicks him. Ganya justifiably demands a DQ, but Atkins lets it go. Funk makes the ropes. Final two counts off a Bockwinkel slam and a Funk roll-up, but time expires. At 15 minutes, it's a time limit draw. Larry asks for five more minutes. The crowd, seeming to have come back around in the late match, actually gives them a standing ovation. Tony says goodbye to Johnny
0: Valentine, who says it was a great match. Uh, Thoughts on it? Oh, boy. Uh, So nothing bad happens in this match. They don't botch anything, really. No. Um, There's stuff that's not as good, but also nothing really exciting happens. I mean, there's a lot of uppercuts and arm holds and body holds and apparently devastating snap (laughs) mares. But yeah, it's 15 minutes where these two guys wrestle at about a third of the speed as everyone else in the show. Mm -hmm. They don't really do a whole lot with it. And then there's no finish because I guess they both need to protect their notoriety. Yeah.
1: It's kind of a company versus company thing, too, where you can see maybe... They didn't want to uh, say the AWA was definitively worse than the NWA or or vice versa.
0: I mean, one of them has been dead for two years at this point. And the other is pre- about think- to be irrelevant, so... <laughs> right. I mean, I think one is one is definitively worse, just as far as <laughs> not being around anymore. True, true. Yeah. I can't point anything that's bad in this match. It's just it's so long and nothing really happens. The crowd definitely turns on their way through. They get a little better towards the end when... They tried to pick up the pace, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. and the ending to me felt less like they turned around, and, like they thought the match was good, as much as it's it's the polite applause when the, like, a game is over kind of the situation.
1: Mm-hmm. A lot of them do do actually stand up for it, though.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like it's a respect for the people thing more than like, oh, well, actually, now I think about it, it was a good match.
1: No, I, I'd agree on that. I'd agree yeah. on that. I just mean, they're they're not so hurt by the earlier performance in the match that they lose respect for them or anything. Oh, they no, are I still I like, you, yeah. You know what, we
0: appreciate your performance a lot. Yeah, I'm glad you were here, but maybe you could have done this in four minutes.
1: Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm in the same boat. If they had put this same amount of action in five or maybe ten minutes, I think this would have been pretty decent. But as it was, 15 minutes was just too long. It's the only one of the Legends matches tonight where I really felt like I was watching older wrestlers. Yeah. The other two kept a good pace, but this one was definitively slow. It did have its moments, though. I appreciated the level of intricacy that they were putting into their holds. There's a lot of little tactics in the ways that they'll lock them on or try to escape. And you can tell these are two very experienced guys. There's one bit in particular I noted where Bachwinkle is caught in an arm lock, and he he goes down uh, to, to suddenly try to reach for Funk's leg. Mm-hmm. To to get out, but then gets thrown down as Funk catches him. So you can tell like little intricacies of their holds that are quite interesting. It's just that they're being done at roughly a third the speed, as you said. Yes, they smack the heck out of each other with some of the forearm shots too. No, oh, yeah, and for the most part, their power moves looked fine. The pile driver being the lone exception. That one scared me a little. Oh yeah, yeah. They also definitely turned it up a bit for the last two or three minutes, and that feels closer to a normal match at that point. Yeah, for sure. I agree with you. The time limit draw ending is pretty shoddy and rather predictable, since this is kind of a company versus company thing. That doesn't help. Yeah. But overall, it's not badly performed. It's just kind of dull. Yeah. I would bet that these guys could have had a great match
0: like five or ten years prior, but it feels like time did catch up. Yeah. It is notable that Nick Bonkwengel retired in 1987. Yeah. So we're six years on from that, and I assume he did some level of training, because he can still go relatively mm-hmm. fine. He can hit his moves okay, it's just, it's just everything's slower. Yeah, yeah. It's a respectable match, it's just, if they
1: were able to pick up the pace a bit more, I think it would have gotten a better reception, and it's unfortunate that with them not able to do that, they put it out there as long as they did. Yes. I think if you had given these guys, like I said, a five-minute match, Maybe it gets thrown out because uh Kaniski and Ganya get involved. Then they could have just gone full tilt the entire time and it would have been quite good. Mm-hmm. But because they decided to do the fifteen minute draw, they have to ration their energy and you can just you can actually tell that's what they're doing.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know it's a source bar for you in general and there's a lot in the show, but it would work as some sort of tag match. Yep, yeah, Because yeah. we saw how well that actually worked to cover their Deficit, basically. Absolutely, if
1: they don't have to maintain two people's energy the entire time, yeah, but can split it between four, mm-hmm. or maybe you know four and a dog, yeah, <laughs> maybe that would work better.
0: So we would see Bockwinkle again because he would hang around being the on-air authority figure, yes, in WCW, <laughs> botching his promos, <laughs> yes. So as I mentioned, Nick Bockwinkle had retired in 1987, so he comes out of retirement essentially for this match. As Funk Jr., he is still not retired. Proving that he is in fact a member of the Funk clan. Yes. <laughs> but to be fair, at this point, Terry is actually retired. Oh, okay. That
1: that actually actually stuck. It is act it, it stuck this time because Terry's also retired about like what, eleven billion times?
0: Yeah, the the people that infamously never stay retired, like him and um Duel the Butcher, most of them have actually stayed retired. Oh, <laughs> okay. Dory Funk Jr. is officially his last match so far was in 2020. <laughs> yes. He teamed up with the Steiner Brothers at a um, Funk Wrestling Academy show. Assuming he would wrestle again this year, but you know, COVID. Yeah.
1: We go to Eric Bischoff, who's with Lou Thez and Bob Geigel. Eric calls Thez a legend that stands alone. Thez says the matches have been wonderful tonight. And Geigel says the NWA versus AWA match was fabulous, and he could see it coming back to the two as they wrestled. Eric says, "Let's get back to the ring,
0: so close." Yes, I wonder. Luthez is not standing alone because he's standing next to Bob Geigel <laughs> <laughs> and also Rick Bischoff. Yeah, yeah. Our sixth match is
1: ravishing Rick Rude and Mister Wonderful Paul Orndorff versus Dustin Rhodes and Kinsuke Sasaki. The referee for this one is Randy
0: Anderson. So there's a bunch of story to this one, mostly on half the competitors for this match. Okay. Earlier this year, there was a match between Steamboat and Dustin Rhodes determined who would challenge the US Champion next, that being Rick Rude. However, he is injured before the match takes place, so they turn it from a number one contendership match to a title match. So Rhodes has a decent run with the belt until Rick Rude's like, hey, what are you doing? It's my belt. <laughs> and of course, he had vacated, so it doesn't really have a claim to it. But, you know, he's a heel. So, yeah, that's what they do. So very recently to this show, they had a match where both their shows were up, but the ref actually seemed to count uh, Rhodes down, even though he wasn't. Um, so Rude would leave with the title. So he's technically U.S. champion, but it is hotly debated in kayfabe at this point, whether he actually is or not.
1: As Larry will point out to Tony, possession is nine-tenths of the law.
0: That's true.
2: (laughs) He's simply ravishing. Rick Rude's 1993
1: song is cheesy, and therefore pretty great. Yes. But it doesn't hold a candle to the seedy, hard-boiled detective theme from his first Stargate appearance. (laughs) No, nothing does. Sadly, Orndorff comes out during the same theme. I think this is a couple years prior to his own best-ever theme song oh yeah yeah nicely they've color coordinated their robes both in blue and silver oh yeah true rude asks for the music to be cut and mocks the crowd for being out of shape he and orndorff start to take their robes off but are interrupted by dustin rhodes the natural natural (laughs) it's still a great ridiculous song it is yes rhodes has his terrific desert sunset jacket but Sasaki is sadly years before the great god of fire jacket he had at Starcade 95. Yes. So he just has a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. On the bright side, the t-shirt is from his team up with Road Warrior Hawk in Japan. Yes. The Hellraisers. Yes. A sign in the crowd calls Orndorff Paula, which I have never gotten. Idea. Yeah. We, we had another show where that came up, didn't it's we? It's constant. Or? It's constant. Yeah. Yeah. They're doing that all the time. But much more awesomely, it also calls him Mr. Blunderful. (laughs) The crowd chants Paula at him. I wish that they would chant, Blunderful, Blunderful. I mean, that is a much better one. Yes. Sasaki and Rude start, and Rude mocks his physique and outfit, shoves him, and flexes. Sasaki looks him over and shoves him several times, the last hurling him
0: skyward and into the corner. That was actually a nice little bit because he. It is. He hooks him under, underneath the, like, the armpit and tosses him in the corner. Yeah, it's like a perfect leverage throw. Yeah. He basically caper tossed a person.
1: Yes. It's impressive. Yeah, yeah. Angrily, Rude attacks, but Sasaki catches him with arm holds and Rude tags out. So Sasaki and Rhodes just trade off working Orndorff's arm instead, including an unusual arm death lock by Sasaki. Tags to Rhodes and Rude. Rhodes wins a slugfest and hits a high back body drop. Let's ask Rude how the ozone's doing. Larry jokes. <laughs> Each catches the other with a knee on a charge, and Rude dodges a Rhodes crossbody, so Rhodes spills over the top ropes to the floor. Rude ramps him to the apron and argues with Sasaki to distract Anderson, so Orndorff sneaks in some barricade rams. Tony claims that would be a DQ normally, but then admits maybe it wouldn't. So they never in <laughs> the rules in this. I've, I've never seen that draw a DQ myself. No. Back in, Rude's swinging neckbreaker gets two, and he and Orndorf trade off against Rhodes. Rhodes resists a Rude pile driver, so Rude changes to a tombstone pile driver, but Rhodes flips over that and turns it into one of his own for two. Larry is very impressed with that. Orndorf back in, but he and Rhodes knock heads on a charge. Orndorf tags Rude, but Rhodes rolls to tag Sasaki. Sasaki destroys Rude with high velocity strikes and does Rude's own hip swivel after an inverted atomic drop. That was pretty funny, yeah. That was hilarious. He does a better job with the hip swivel than he did with the stinger call at Starkade 95. Oh, yeah, Remember yeah. That, that pathetic attempt at it?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sasaki mostly manages a military press and hurls Rude at a charging Orndorff, but Orndorff ducks only to get decked by Rhodes. The faces run the heels into each other, and Rhodes fights Orndorff outside. The crowd chants, Whoop! there it is, because it is 1993. Yes. Sasaki goes up, but Orndorff knocks Rhodes down and pushes Sasaki off the top rope. Rhodes chases Orndorff, but Rude hits the Rude Awakening on Sasaki for the three count and the win, as Rhodes realized too late that Sasaki was in danger. Thoughts on this one?
0: That was a pretty good match. The action was pretty strong. Obviously, as I mentioned, Rude and Rhodes, which sounds like a and a, a law firm, I guess? Yeah, and it sounds like they should be the tag team. It does, yeah, yeah. Ruden Rhodes, yeah. Yeah. They work together quite a bit at this point, so it's not surprising they have chemistry down. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One thing I think about the more I watch young Justin Rhodes is so we had a story in the previous year where it was him and Barry Wyndham together, and then when they lost the titles, Windham betrayed him. Mm-hmm. Thinking back to how Wyndham does a thing where he'll use his height and sort of his leverage in interesting ways... I see that with Rhodes, especially in this match, mm-hmm, yep. when he powers out of the tombstone, for instance, where he pushes off of Rude's hips and leans his body back. So his long legs do most of the work for him. Mm-hmm, yep. So it's interesting to see if he really picked that up from working with Wyndham.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because I've never really thought of Dustin Rhodes as particularly tall, but he is. He's 6'5", I think. Yeah,
0: he's, he's right up there with Wyndham. Yeah. Tazaki thought was pretty impressive in on this one, too. He's mm-hmm. always been pretty good when we've seen him on the show. He has good speed and sort of power behind what he does. At this point, he hasn't quite gotten the, like, character thing down other than his amusing bit where he's sort of looking over Rick Rude and his outfit mm-hmm. and sort of befuddled by the whole thing. Like, he sees the uh, the airbrushing on us, so sort of confused by it <laughs>
3: Yes, yeah.
0: At this point, he feels like he's really close to being the star he needs to be, and obviously he gets closer, though, for time. He had mm-hmm, a pretty yeah. career outside of this. I have to note the amusing selling by Rick Rue when he takes the atomic drop as well yes <laughs> he pops up on his the the front of his feet yeah it goes goes all tiptoe yeah, he goes all tiptoe exactly' vlogger, like, It's like it's a cartoon character like when they <laughs> when they fall and they get up and the car gets knocked down. <laughs> all I could think of was like a uh, punch out oh yeah, 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 there you go. <laughs> the finish was interesting it's Pretty cliche at this point, you know, the faces fight really strongly, but then one gets distracted and, you know, they, the heels win. It's a little bit of a cheap finish, but definitely protects in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sasaki has an interesting, almost miscue with the rude awakening, where he starts to go down and rude, like, no, no, not yet. <laughs> yeah. You can see him hold him up and finish it. <laughs> and it's funny you mention that he's wearing the Hellraiser's shirt, because he blatantly no-sells that finish. <laughs> much like Road Hawkwood, Yeah. And has. I mean he takes the 3 3 and then's like back up to his knees like ready to fight a second later. <laughs>
1: yeah, for me this was a very good tag match. It set a fast pace from the outset and never slowed down one bit. I thought both teams worked very well together though neither really had particular tag spots aside from holding opponents during tags to smoothly trade off holds, which it did quite well. Yeah. Rude and Rhodes had good emotion in their bits. But I'm going to disagree with you a bit on Sasaki. I think he nailed that part of this match as well, okay. especially when he was facing Rude.
0: Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I don't take anything away from their interaction. I think as a whole, he's not quite there, that's all.
1: Yeah, I, I can see that still. But I just think th- this match, more than anyone that I've seen him in, other than maybe his match with Sting, mm-hmm. felt like he really was hitting that emotional side and, and willing to to pull out the intensity, not just in how he was doing the moves, but in how he was reacting to doing the moves. It's definitely an improvement over Starkey,
0: what is it, 92, I believe? 92, I believe yeah. Much, yeah.
1: Where his standout moment is suffering the falling refrigerator spot, as yes. I recall. Yes.
0: <laughs> True.
1: Yeah, I thought he nailed his role here. And while everyone did well, Sasaki was the star of the match for me. Mm, with yeah. great emotion and a nice story of him using momentum, and even turning his shorter height into an advantage over the taller root. Really a standout performance with him at this stage, even with a loss. The ending, I thought, felt really nicely timed. Orndorff takes advantage of a split second away from Rhodes to interrupt Sasaki, and Rhodes is just a little too angry at Orndorff to notice that his partner is in trouble until it's too late. Yeah, It even ties in nicely with something Larry was saying mid-match, that you have to keep your emotions in check and wrestle with your head or you're going to make mistakes. Yeah, Rhodes started letting emotion rule, and the team went down for it.
0: So it's a nice match with a good story. Yeah. I will say there's definitely too much focus on commentary about whether or not Rhodes and Sazaki can communicate with each other. Yeah, there's some questionable commentary on on this one. thing with this match, you could argue that it's the weak point of it that it seems like it's two singles wrestlers working together instead of two tag teams fighting. But at the same time, the finish is all based around that. Yes, so it kind of works both as ways. It's part of the story of the match. And I think that uh, that actually
1: ends up working for it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There would be another match between the pair of Rude and Rhodes, attorneys of law, <laughs> <laughs> um, which would lead, unsurprisingly, to a double pin spot. So now the title is vacated, which is already to be disputed. So I guess you need to make sure it's vacated as well. It's a little interesting. Yeah. How many times do we have to have Rick Rude vacating? Titles, let alone the U.S. title. Fair fair point. In this this story alone.
1: I I do have to say, if if you take out the and, if it's just rude roads, that sounds like maybe a country band.
0: Mm, Yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) But yeah, that would lead to a match at Beach Blast, where they would try and determine who is the new rightful U.S. title holder. Okay. As for Orndorff, he would continue to defend his TV title against the likes of Ron Simmons and Ricky Steamboat. We go back to
1: Tony Schiavone, and he says it's time to induct the first members of the WCW Legends Hall of Fame. And throws to Gordon Soly. First, taking a moment to build up Gordon as a man who guided his own career and as a legend himself. Credit to you for that, Tony. That was very nice. Yeah. Larry agrees with Tony that it's fitting that Soli gets to introduce the Legends of the Ring. Soli seems genuinely touched by the crowd's cheers, but they go on for so long, he actually has to ask them to let him proceed, <laughs> which I just realize is kind of another Starcade 83 flashback. Didn't Flair have to do that?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. <laughs>
1: That's true. Soli says that they'll induct four members to the Hall of Fame, and he's honored to induct them. He slightly flubs the line by noting that there are, quote, living legends who won't join us tonight because they have passed away.
0: Mm. Well, they, they live on in our hearts. Or yeah, yeah, no, no, no. It's still sweet. <laughs> it is, yeah.
1: He reads off names. Buddy Rogers, Andre the Giant, Pat O'Connor, Gene Anderson, Dick the Bruiser, Wilbur Snyder. And he says one more will be mentioned later. He asks for a moment of silence. It actually takes the crowd quite a while to cool it, so it really ends up just a moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Soli introduces the Hall of Fame inductees as a classy video package plays for each, showing news articles and old photographs of them, and each comes to the ring, and Soli goes over each man's history in very nice detail. Each is given a plaque with their picture on it. First is Luthes, followed by Vern Gagne, who gets a few boos from the NWA fans. <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: Vern wipes away tears. Mr. Wrestling 2 is third up, And Soli points out that we have never seen him unmasked, and tells a story about him being invited to visit Jimmy Carter at the inauguration, but finding out that he couldn't go masked, so he politely declined. That's true, yeah. And indeed, he's still masked as he accepts his award here. The final inductee is Eddie Graham, and as he's passed on, his award is accepted by his son, Mike Graham. Soli builds up Eddie Graham's charity and service work, which is a really nice touch. Mm Mm-hmm. Soli shows the legends to the crowd one more time and throws to Missy Hyatt. I don't know about you, Al, but for me, this is in contention for the best thing WCW ever did.
0: It's definitely up there. It's really classy, yeah.
1: Yeah, it feels genuine, heartfelt, and very touching. Mm -hmm. Truly honoring these men and what they'd accomplished both in professional wrestling performances and in their personal lives. Icing on the cake for me was having Soli do this. Yeah, yeah. As Tony and Larry point out, Soli is a legend himself, and the perfect person for announcing the inductions. I think WCW is at its best when it's honoring its history, and there's no better example of that than this.
0: Yeah, it's definitely up there for sure, yeah. Oh, it's an interesting little note. The last appearance of Andre the Giant, who's mentioned here, in a wrestling show is appearing at Clash Champions 20 as a guest of Gordon Soli. Oh, how Interesting. Yeah, he never actually appears officially as a WWE competitor or anybody, but they do a red carpet at the beginning of the show while his legends are there. This is September of 1992, like I said. Okay. And yeah, so Andre is the invited guest of Gordon Soly.
1: Oh, that's cool. Missy Hyatt introduces Lord James Bleers and John Tolos. Tolos says that he's been having a great time hanging out with his old friends, and that WCW is, quote, the only way to spell wrestling. Well, the first letter's right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Bleers agrees and gives Missy an English monocle, so she does a terrible British accent. <laughs> Tally-ho! Let's go back down to the ring!
0: <laughs> What's with everyone adding to the show title tonight, by the way? Come on, people, get it right. Exactly, yeah. Trying to, trying to make us change the our moniker. <laughs> Can we wait too much time making that graphic. <laughs>
1: our seventh match? Is Sting versus the Prisoner in a special bounty match? The
0: referee for this one is Nick Patrick. So they're playing coy about it at this point, but the story is that someone has put a bounty out on Sting to keep him away, you know, from challenging for the title or any title like that. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure it's supposed to be that it's um, Vader doing it, but they have at this point they haven't gotten to that saying that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they build up the that Scott Norton has come to answer the bounty. And he actually appears on the show that, due to pre taping, airs the day before the show on WCW Saturday night. They gave him a big squash match, and it's a little side note I found. was kind of funny. So they mention, as part of his accolade, that he appears in the movie Over the Top. <laughs> yeah, because that's an accolade. Yeah, yeah. That is actually a segue because maybe in that, I'm going to air a special interview with Specialist Alone from the set of Demolition Man. Wow. Now, the network does not have this on there. Aw. But YouTube does. <laughs> you can watch that. It's Eric Bischoff um, interviewing Stallone on set backstage somewhere. It's him and Jesse Ventura who is in his outfit that he wears in the movie, even though his scene was cut for time.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I legit forgot that Jesse Ventura was involved in that movie.
0: Yeah. He's in a bunch of those movies where he's in a cut for time where he's in there so briefly you don't remember. Like being a Batman and Robin, for instance. <laughs> yeah, he's a prison guard in Batman and Robin. Wow. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so that was all set up. And in fact, due to pre-taping, Matura is commentating that show. So I don't, I, don't, I don't know how recent his hospital stay is. So you'd be surprised to find out he's not on the show, given you heard him last night. Yeah. And Scott Norton is also not there because he allegedly quit the day before. Oh, God. Or at least very, very recently. Enough that they didn't cancel airing his match to build up. His matching against Sting. So there wasn't a point on a show where he got beat up by the prisoner. No. They just credited prisoner with that because he left. Correct. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. He wrestles like a one minute squash match, beats a guy, and they build up his match against Sting, then cut a video package, and then, yeah, that's it. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so some point off camera, the prisoner beat up God <laughs> Norton. Sting's jacket
1: today is silvery blue and pink and we are in the Man Called Sting song era, which always makes me smile. Mm -hmm. The Prisoner comes out to no music at all in an orange prison jumpsuit and with a nightstick. Larry jokes that he looks like The Thing. He looks like neither the Marvel Comics character, any character from the John Carpenter movie, or the Adams Family character, so I'm not sure what Larry is referencing there.
0: At most, he kind of vaguely looks like the creature from The Thing from Another World, but that's that's still a stretch. That's quite distant yeah yeah just being a tall ugly person i guess is enough to be the thing i guess so the prisoner
1: is the much more generic name for the man who was known in the wwf as nails you you couldn't come up with a different prison name for him wcw really no nope. prisoner chokes sting and chokes him and chokes him and chokes him he breaks at four most of the time at least Mm-hmm. Larry sounds shocked when Prisoner finally actually uses a back elbow. <laughs> yeah. But then it's back to choking. Yes. He does get two off a stalling backbreaker. Sting dodges a charge and land strikes, but Prisoner just kind of stands there. Tony tries his best to tell us that he's absorbing the blows, but I'm pretty sure he just doesn't know how to sell. At all. hmm Prisoner rakes the eyes and flings Sting outside for choking with a cable... And Larry tries to excuse it by saying he's got a 10 count outside. that That's for countouts, Larry, not for
0: DQs. Yeah, you can't choke someone for 10 seconds outside. <laughs> yeah, but it really is how he sa- sounds like. Oh, he yeah, said. no, he definitely tries to push that, yeah. This is incredible,
1: Tony says. His tone of voice says otherwise. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Back in, Sting ducks a clothesline and hits a weird kind of clothesline splash for one. I think somebody was in the wrong position there, probably the prisoner. Yeah, pretty sure. Sting gets prisoner in the corner for the stinger splash and seems to set for a scorpion deathlock, but instead just covers for two. Sting misses a high angle elbow drop and Tony jokes, there's nobody in the cell that time. Tony's trying to have some fun here. Yes. Prisoner lands strikes in the corner and Patrick warns him. So prisoner grabs him, but Sting hits a top rope flying clothesline for the three count and the win. Sting starts walking to the back as soon as the match is over, Yes, and Patrick actually has to catch up to hold up his hands in victory. Patrick says something to Sting, visibly, and Sting stops and faces the crowd for a little bit longer before going backstage. I can't say for sure, but it felt like Sting just wasn't happy and wanted to be done with it. It
0: sure looks like that. Yeah. The closest reaction you have to him after a match is the infamous Victory Road 2011 match. The Jeff Hardy one? Yeah. Yes. Although he he's more overt in that one, how about how he feels in that one. Yeah, it really looks like he's just like, Wow, this was bad, I'm going
1: backstage. And Patrick is like, dude, post for the fans for a moment. <laughs> yes.
0: Uh thoughts on it? Joking. Joking. More choking, Sting wins. <laughs> oh, and Sting leaves and never looks back. Yeah, yeah. It's <sighs> I think we kind of
1: share Sting's opinion of this match.
0: Yeah. You know, the thing is, and mind you, I haven't covered a lot of Scott Norton on this show. I'm not a huge fan of Scott Norton, but I feel like his match was still been better than this. Like a billion times, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's yes. hard to, you know, how many times, times zero do you need to be? be better <laughs> yes. Yeah, poor Sting, he, he really, he tries to be a dynamic in the selling, but this matches is set up to where he has to be dominated so much that he can do a whole lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had more fun with him when he wrestled that really short match against... Um, the Iron Sheik. Yes. 12th, it wasn't a great match, but it had Sting looking big and dominant, so it worked okay for me. They both had big characters, so yeah, that, yeah. that still worked, yeah. Yeah, it pains me
1: to say this because this is a Sting match, but this was awful. Mm-hmm. The prisoner just has so little beyond just choking Sting, and he seems to have no idea how to act when he's not on offense. WCW is clearly going for kind of like a Sting, Vader, King of Cable vibe here where the dominant heel batters Sting and he just manages to last long enough to find an opening. Mm -hmm. But it does not work. No. (laughs) The match is plain dull even when Sting is on offense, because Prisoner is just bad at taking hits. Yes. And the ending feels more suited to a surprise jobber win over an arrogant heel than a win by well-established superstar Sting over a totally new heel. This is a hard sell to get over a new character that just ends up exposing how little that new character has to offer. Very much so, yes. I know this is the first show for the series, but I am going to be shocked if this match is not on my list of worst matches of the series <laughs> when we're done with the Berries,
0: It's that bad. I, I totally can see that, yeah. So this is the only WCB match, as far as I can tell, with the prisoner in it. Okay. At least trying to sound disappointed when I say that, Bob. Nope, nope, not at all. <laughs> okay, good. Just, just making sure. Uh, he would keep working in numerous companies like the AWF. Very briefly, Jim Crockett tried to make a new promotion after he sold his shares to Turner called the WWN. He hired him for some reason. <laughs> and he also worked for a company called the WWWA, which made him their world champion. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. It's after this, mind you. Yes, it's like two years after this they made. A Why? Career. I don't know. Jeez. <laughs> oh, Think with him. So I was doing research on the prisoner. He actually had a pre lengthy the career before this. Yeah, that's, he wrestled in world class and in fact in the EWA. That's what's
1: so shocking that he doesn't seem to have anything. He's he's not new. No, no.
0: His performance would be fine if we were talking about like this is your first year. Yes. Like we were covering with the previous thing with Tommy Jammer. right? He came yeah. and did basic stuff, but he also had been wrestling for less than a year, so it's fine.
1: Yeah. Or even, I'd, I'd give him if it was a new character, like uh, Calloway's first few performances as The Undertaker. He's pretty slow in plotting and doesn't necessarily do a lot. Because they told him, don't sell. Because they no, told that, him, yeah. yeah. They told him, don't sell and choke people a lot. Yeah, And that's what he does. But that's, like, the first few performances as the character. This guy has been nails for a while.
0: Yeah. Here, I found this. You might find this interesting. This is a picture I'm going to send you now. This is Nails uh, a few years before this, actually, in the 80s. That's different. Yeah, right? And then see who his manager is. Medusa, okay, yeah. Yeah. Magnificent
1: Kevin Kelly. Yes. I guess I should describe it for listeners as, yeah, he's standing there in a in a robe, not a not a bejeweled robe, unfortunately. A bathrobe. And with long blonde hair. Yeah. Kind of kind of going for a flare look, I think, but with less bling.
0: Very much so, yeah. I would never have pictured that before you sent me this picture. That's another one I have um where he surprisingly looks like Lex Luger. Interesting. I
1: would actually be interested in seeing a match with him outside of the Nails gimmick. To see is that the gimmick or is that just always the way he wrestled? Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe he has more and he just is actually restraining it because he doesn't think it's part of the character. Right, right. I, I could, you know, see on that, but give him some grace there.
0: Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, this is not good. <laughs> no. <laughs> Brent Gagne, for all his faults, he really, like, technically wrestled yeah. his background. I don't think he would have been very happy with this style. Yeah. So, I, I, I would assume that when he was, wasn't wrestling with the prisoner, he didn't wrestle this poorly and just choke people so much but yeah Sting would obviously thankfully rebound from this to be in the same event match with Sid mentioned earlier at Beach Blast no more prisoners in his future thankfully oh thank goodness we go back to the
1: commentary team and Tony narrates another quick Beach Blast promo has a fun cartoon wave and beach animations for this one but nothing notable otherwise we cut back to them And Tony and Larry tried to talk up the show so far, while the WCW crew is working around their table to set up a cage around the ring for the next match. It really throws Larry in particular. Tony jokes they're going to cage Larry rather than the ring, and throws to Eric Bischoff. Eric is with Larry's greatest fear, the Crusher, (laughs) and Ox Baker, the latter of which wins our Lifetime Achievement Award for facial hair. Absolutely,
0: yeah, no (laughs) question.
1: Holy crap. Spiked
0: eyebrows and crazy huge mustache. Awesome look. If you're a fan of 80s cinema, he also fights Kurt Russell in Escape from New York. Oh, okay. That's Ox Baker. That's cool. Crusher says that he's got 100 megaton biceps,
1: and he's thrown lots of bums out of saloons, but he must have missed Ox Baker. (laughs) Baker gives a great, wait, did he just call me a bum kind of look? (laughs) (laughs) Crusher claims he's undefeated in cage matches, much like his friend Dick the Bruiser did when he showed up and says he'll throw Baker through the cage like throwing tomatoes through a screen door. Baker joins the fun, claiming that Crusher tried to get him in a cage match at his wedding. (laughs) Baker notes that whenever he knocked people down, he would kick them in the face like a gentleman does. He says he loves to hurt people. He suddenly notices that Crusher is better looking than him. Poor Eric looks completely befuddled by all of this. Yeah. <laughs> and Baker gives him a bear hug as Eric throws back to the ring.
0: Utterly hilarious bit. These guys were funny as heck. Yeah. <laughs> Bishop is definitely the, like, teenage cousin stuck between the two uh, uncles. At a yes.
1: Party. <laughs> the two drunk, drunk ranting uncles.
0: Yes, very much so. <laughs> were at odds over, I don't
1: know, a football game or something. And he's yeah, like, yeah. I don't even know who these people are that you're talking about. What's
0: going on? <laughs> Why are you talking about Vietnam so much?
1: <laughs> yeah, th- this was probably my favorite of the uh, Legends promos. I-, I think it was just just absolute gold.
0: Yeah, because th- they don't have anything to prove. You know, they're not part of a story. They're just there to have fun. That's all they want to
1: do. Yeah, they're clearly having a great time. Yeah. Our eighth match is Dos Hombres, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat and allegedly Shane Douglas versus the Hollywood Blondes, Stunning Steve Austin and Flyin' Brian Pillman, in a cage match for the Blondes NWA-WCW World Tag Team Championships.
0: The referee for this one is Mike Atkins. So when they last left the team of Reggae Steamboat and Shane Douglas, they were the combined world tag champions, when they currently holding the NWA and WCW tag champions. which I think they eventually got rid of the one somehow. I forget the heck how that works. They had, they had two belts at Starcade. At this point, they're clearly still combined. Yeah. But I think they only have one set of belts now. And a very recent Class of Champions show, the reign came to an end at the hands of Steve Austin and Brian Pillman. Something else happened before this show Shane Douglas left the company for ECW. Oh, jeez. So, a couple weeks before this, they had a match in which, I guess, trying to keep the storyline going, they had <laughs> Ricky Steamboat and Brad Armstrong. Okay both wearing full mask and bodysuit covers as the masked Dose own brace, which led to Ricky Steamboat unmasking, but not Brad Armstrong. Because they have to send he Shane Douglas somehow. <laughs> so that happened at the taping. So that leads to this match where I guess they don't want to make Brad Armstrong work two matches. So they placed him with Tom Zink. <laughs> which you do whenever possible. Wow. So to be clear he had left before they even started this, there was brace thing. Okay, yeah. That was a cover to keep the storyline of Steamboat and Douglas against the Hollow Blondes going, because they wanted this payoff. That's funny. And it's not
1: even the same guy that Steamboat is wrestling with. It's a uh, go-to masked wrestler Brad Armstrong. Yes. And then now it's Z-Man.
0: Okay. Yes. It's weird that it's two people, yeah. I, I was. I thought it was, I just assumed it was Zink both times by reading about it. Yeah, no, it's Brad Armstrong the first time. Yeah. I with knowing that even when you cover it in a bodysuit, neither would looks like exactly like Shane Douglas. No. Not a great cover. Dos hombres come to the ring in red
1: bodysuits with red and green masks and big sombreros, but still enter to Steamboat's family man theme. This may be the strangest thing I've yet watched Ricky Steamboat
0: do. Yeah, it's definitely up there. On the plus side, their red and green masks are kind of Christmassy. They are, they are, yes. I know it's not what they're going for, but I'll take it. Yeah.
1: Hombre Uno grabs a mic and explains that they had good luck in these outfits in an earlier match, so they're hoping it helps them win the tag titles. Okay? Austin and Pillman come out in beefeater uniforms. <laughs> just kidding. They just wear the normal Hollywood blondes getups. We cut to a couple guys in suits and sunglasses in the crowd, talking to each other, and Tony and Larry wonder who they could be. Austin yells for Steamboat to take the mask off, and yes, he does point at the correct one. Mm-hmm. Uno and Austin start, and Austin aggressively takes him down and tries to tear off the mask. The Blondes trade off against Uno, but he gamely takes them on with chops and arm drags. Tony says he has to be Steamboat.
0: Yeah, he does He does that running chop, even where he does drops to one knee while doing it. Yeah. Yep, yep. Uno and Pillman both block cage smashes. Tony
1: says one of the greatest cage matches was one Larry had with Bruno San Martino, and Larry is very pleased. Dose takes over, and he and Austin both block cage smashes, but Austin tries to get a different angle by going through the ropes, and Dose shoves him into the cage repeatedly. Dose does a little dance. That's how you can tell that it's not Shane Douglas, because there's actual personality.
0: That's true, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there
1: you go. Larry mentions his own good luck charm parachute cord that he's used as boot laces for 18 years uno tags in to send austin flying to the cage with the back body drop again with an atomic drop and again by just hurling him bodily over the ropes
0: ow 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 the back body drop was especially bad work. yes because he's, he's like not quite enough where he gets all his body against the cage which would not be pleasant either way but it's a more solid impact yes his, like, his legs hit it and bounce at the ropes, and he falls at a really bad angle. Yeah, it did not look pleasant at all. Yeah. It was like he was simultaneously too close to the cage for the backdrop to work as a normal backdrop, but also too far away for it from it the work as a backdrop into the cage. Yes. The worst of both worlds, unfortunately.
1: Dose and Pillman in, and Pillman lures Dose in for a sucker punch and some choking. Dose fights him off and tags Uno, who sends Pillman into the cage. Pillman tags Austin, but his back's too hurt to lift Uno, and Uno suplexes him up, up onto the cage, hanging him by his legs, and mocks the blonde's filming taunt, then hits a flying shoulder block. Tagged to Dose for another, but Austin gets free,
0: and Dose eats the cage. I mean, that, that's pretty generous, because I think what happens is he, his legs come loose and he falls really dangerously towards the- I couldn't tell if that was a botch
1: or if he actually was supposed to get free there, because they kind of go with it.
0: I mean, it feels like a botch to me, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I feel like maybe he was supposed to get free, but get free smoother. Where like get free and like pull himself upward rather than just, again, fall headfirst towards the ground. <laughs> yes. But anyway, if it is a botch, they cover it really well, because Austin just immediately
1: very quickly snatches Dos's leg for a split second to block a tag, and the Blondes wear down Dose with vicious strikes, choking, and an Austin diving elbow for two. So it definitely feels like that was supposed to be a turning point moment. Somehow, yeah. There's a funny bit as Austin's back hurts too much for him to do the filming taunt. <laughs> <laughs> Pillman sneaks in some choking with his towel, but when the ref looks, he pretends he was just wiping off his sweat. That gets one as Dos gets a foot on the ropes. Dos counters Pillman's nothing in particular off the second rope with a boot, and starts fighting back, even pinballing Austin between him and Uno with some punches. Tony says, you can tell Dos is Douglas based on his punches. No. <laughs> yeah. I I do wonder if we have to analyze if uh, Z-Man was properly imitating a Douglas punch or not.
0: Mm, That's true.
1: If they just happened to punch similarly. Austin smoothly blocks the tag with a spine buster. Austin launches Pillman at Dos in the atomic blonde, but Dos gets his knees up and makes the tag to Uno. Uno chops both blondes down and sends both to the cage. Pillman and Austin try to flee, but Uno stops Austin with an electric chair drop and makes him move the crowd for a second. Yes. And stops Pillman by crotching him on the ropes, then hits a double noggin knocker. All four are in, and Austin and Dos meet the cage. So Uno drop kicks Pillman to the cage and goes up top. Uno unmasks, revealing that Tony was right. He's Steamboat. <gasps> huge, huge cheers to that. Yeah. Steamboat dives off the cage onto both blondes for two. The bell rings, but Atkins leaps up to signal it was only two, not three. Steamboat DDTs Austin, but Atkins is still correcting the timekeeper, so it only gets two. Steamboat DDT to Pillman, for two. Stereo Ombre dropkicks, for two. The Ombres try to fling the blondes into each other, but Pillman reverses, and DDTs Steamboat as Austin stun guns dose on the top rope, for the three count, and the win. Everyone is left laying by that ending, totally exhausted. The replay shows Steamboat's cage dive, which Larry oddly calls a perfect imitation of Captain Planet. I, I don't get that reference <laughs> at all.
0: And Austin's stun gun. Yeah, the Captain Planet thing is weird. Yes. I, I, I Even when you watch the Matrix I'm like, I still don't know what that means. I mean Captain Planet does fly and I think that show was roughly current at this time. Yeah, but... yeah, no. I get that part. I just don't know how, why you associate jumping off a cage with somebody. Yeah. You know, I do associate jumping off a cage with Jimmy, Jimmy Stuka, Snuka. Yeah. <laughs> who was on this show? Yeah, you could have called that out, but <laughs> like hey, homage to Jimmy Snuka who yeah, was on this show if remember, I guess. Yeah. No. Thoughts on this one? The actual match I thought was really strong. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you have to get past both the whole chicanery of the whole process, where Tom Zink is pretending to be St. Douglas for some reason. It's because he's because he's wearing, uh, was it finger tape, right? He's gone? They figure him apart? Steamboat is the one that wears finger tape. Okay, I got, yeah, it was one of the two. Yes, yeah. one's wearing it and one's not wearing it. That's how I ended. I, I looked
1: at the end of the match, waited for Steamboat to unmask, and then looked at his hands to see that he had the finger tape on. Yeah, and then I could follow which one was him throughout the match. <laughs>
0: you can also do a reverse because he's the one that does the promo. The yes, yeah, that's true. But either either way, you can get to there. The other thing is, it's one of those matches where it's the it's a cage match, but it's not no DQ, and you're tagging. Which obviously I like some of. I've liked at least one of those matches. Yes. So it's not like that match can't work, but it's definitely it's confusing the times they do matches like that. It's like, I get you're in a cage to, like, stop outside interference or something, make it more dangerous, but you're still tagging it now. It just looks really weird in a cage, no matter how you do it. Yeah, it's an interesting midpoint where it's like, we're not going to go
1: to the extent of making this an ODQ total brawl. Right. We're just having the cage, and it's okay to use it as a weapon. Yes. Yeah, like you said, it's it's a weird rule set, but we liked some of those matches. uh yeah, One, yeah. In, One in massively in particular yeah. during the Starcade run, so...
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> It can definitely work. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it's just, it does feel weird looking at modernize this kind of match. Yes, yeah. Poor Austin takes a pretty rough time. Oh, girl, yeah. All those cage bumps and then the possible bot, possible escape spot where he decides to drop towards the ground with his head. Yes. At least the angle he falls, I think that's got to be a bot. But they, they, either way, it's covered well enough. Mm-hmm. Something like that could really mess a match up, especially if it was accidental. Yeah. Credit them them all for keeping that everything going apart part of mm, that. Absolutely, yeah. I think the story you really tell here is that Steamboat is a really solid wrestler. Obviously, we know this, but in, in character, he's a really strong performer. But ultimately, Austin and Pillman are a better tag team. Mm-hmm. Especially because his tag partners changed what, twice now? <laughs> it's already, he's, he's good with Shane Douglas, but he's gone. He dusted to Brad Armstrong and he's gone too, so. Yeah. I think he's the last guy left. But I, I like that. That finish is really good. The sort of switch around uh, bit where Austin counters a basic move of just throwing a guy at at you into his finish it was really nice.
1: Yeah, that was an excellent, excellent uh, ending. I thought. Mm-hmm. I thought this was a terrific tag match filled with intense action. Some great use of the cage for some crazy spots, particularly as you noted on Austin's part. He <laughs> was willing to take willing to take absolutely insane bumps yeah. to the cage over the course of this one. Steamboat was sharp and graceful as always, and Dose, who uh, I guess I would just refer to now as Tom Zink. Yeah, Z-Man had some good chemistry with him, actually, I thought. yeah, Which is especially impressive, considering this was, you know, <laughs> their first tag team together, apparently. And the Blondes had some terrific teamwork with nice, subtle moments, like when a dazed Austin grabbed Dose's leg for just a split second to prevent a tag. Mm-hmm. The match got particularly wild and chaotic in the ending moments. And it is a little bit odd that Atkins counts both pin attempts on the DDTs after Steamboat's dive. I guess he just couldn't remember which blonde was the legal one.
0: Yeah, true.
1: I think it was Austin, but I'm not actually sure myself. Regardless, really fun and fast-paced match with an ending that kept me guessing. Excellent, excellent work. And this is another Z-Man match that we've liked. Yeah, true. So, you know, hey, good on you, guy. <laughs> I think the key so far is if you has Pillman and Z-Man. That seems to work. Yeah, that's a good pairing. I I hadn't actually thought of it that way, but that is the same one we liked from Russell War in particular. Yeah.
0: So we just need every Tom Zink match from here on out to have Pillman in some way to perform, and then we're good. Yep,
1: yep. should just carry a little Brian Pillman flag out each time he comes out for a match, and he'll just do well by by association.
0: Yeah, yeah. There you go. (laughs) So as mentioned, Shane Douglas had left the company. He would win his first ECW title in September. And obviously, you can guess who he won it from, given I already told you who the champion is currently. <laughs> as a steamboat, as servant, of he would change his focus from the tag title, since he's now down two tag partners, or I guess three tag partners, really. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's starting to keep track of this anymore. He would change his focus from that to the TV title, going after Polardorf. We go back to Eric Bischoff, who's with
1: Stu Hart, Mr. Wrestling 2, and Dusty Rhodes. Dusty congratulates Mr. Wrestling 2 and accepts Assassin's Challenge, saying that his big ass is standing right out here. (laughs) Mr. Wrestling 2 thanks WCW for the honor of being in the Hall of Fame. Stu Hart talks up his extensive wrestling family and builds up the strength and wrestling ability of his son-in-law, Davy Boy Smith, the British Bulldog, who's going to challenge Vader for the world title tonight. He's hoping that Smith can overpower Vader and win the title. (laughs) It continues to be weird that Dusty and the Assassin keep trying to get a match going here, but I thought Stu actually did a quite a good job of building up Smith for the upcoming world title match.
0: It's really weird seeing Stu Hart on a WWF show of all things. Yes. At this He's point, anyway. far right?
1: more associated with the WWF because of Brett. Yes. Our ninth match is The Enforcer, Aaron Anderson versus Barry Windham for Windham's NWA World Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this match is Randy Anderson, <laughs> giving us another Arn Anderson, Randy Anderson match.
0: <laughs> At the end of 1982, after their tag partnership failed to regain the titles, Wyndham would split from Pillman, who obviously, as we saw, has done pretty well with tag partners since then. Mm-hmm. And so being a solo act, Barry Wyndham went for and won the NWA title okay. on a previous show. In the process, he also spurred the advances of Ric Flair and other four horsemen in the buildup of the show. Because they wanted to bring him back, and he said no. He's mm. he declared himself the lone wolf. Cool enough title.
1: Arn comes out with a nice, shiny red four-horseman jacket, but has sadly left the dad glasses behind. No. Barry Wyndham has a vocal song this year, "Smokin," in a very nice red and brown jacket that looks quite dignified. The big problem with Wyndham's song is that he walks to the ring so fast it. Barely actually gets to the lyrics. Oh, yeah, which, true. which are ridiculous, by the way, if you ever look them up. Mm hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Arn gets early two counts off a shoulder block, belly to belly suplex, and back body drop, and signals to Wyndham that that was close. Wyndham lands big punches, but Arn gets another two count off a DDT as he's a little slow to cover, so Wyndham retreats outside and decks Arn when he follows. Back in, Wyndham counters the shoulder block with a knee to the face. And slugs Arn as he's coming off the top rope. (laughs) Those look like they hurt. Mm, yeah. Arn is stunned, and Windup gets two off a DDT and an elbow drop. They brawl outside, and Arn sends Windup to the barricade, which Tony finally clarifies is legal in NWA rules, but illegal under WCW rules. Oh, that nonsense, yeah. (sighs) Wyndham is bleeding, and Arn rakes and slugs the injury until Tony calls Wyndham's face a Crimson Mask in honor of Gordon Soley. Yeah. Wyndham suplexes him on the floor mats. Sorry, (laughs) that sounded like he was suplexing Gordon Soley. Apologies. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Wyndham suplexes Arn on the floor mats and back in, hits a top rope clothesline that knocks Arn butt over tea kettle. (laughs) Wyndham earns two counts with a knee drop and suplex. But a dazed Arn still reverses a whip to his typically beautiful spinebuster. Wyndham grabs his belt and tries to walk, but Arn decks him and brings him back, flinging him to the ring. Arn batters Wyndham with punches in the corner, and Randy Anderson tries to warn him to stop, so Arn brushes him aside a couple times and finally just throws him down in frustration. Arn immediately realizes his mistake and is distraught, but with Arn distracted and Randy down... Wyndham nails Arn with the title belt. Randy wakes up to deliver the three count and the win for Wyndham. Wyndham walks off down the ramp with his belt, as we get replays of the
0: top rope clothesline and the belt shot. Thoughts on this one? That was a pretty solid match. Obviously, you have two really reliable competitors here, so it's not surprising that they have a good match. It's interesting to see Arn in a situation like this, because how many times do we have him wrestling for like a singles title? especially of this caliber, even at this point on pay-per-view. And basically being the face yeah. for
1: the match as well, which is just, it felt weird.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think the biggest thing for me of the match is that Wyndham definitely, if, if he didn't start as a heel, he definitely is a heel by the end. It's almost like they realized midway through that everybody loves Arn, mm. which,
1: you know, I agree with. Yes. I guess it is weird that I have trouble... With realizing Arn was the face in this match when Arn is basically always a face to me,
0: but... You're fighting your baser uh, instincts on it, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, because it seems like he's definitely a face going into the match, because he's, you know, he's on his own, he doesn't need the groove. Even if you like the horseman, the idea that he's a lone wolf and defending his title by himself is is pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. But then when things go wrong, he definitely resorts to cheating.
1: Yeah, yeah, very, very quickly, yeah.
0: Yes, like a very natural tradition for him to go, oh, well, I'm a heel now. <laughs> just just sitting with my belt. It might be intentional, but it feels like a very old school, late 80s match mm-hmm. versus a Shimon main event on a 1993 show. Now, I'd think I say it might be intentional, one, because it's Arn and Wyndham who obviously wrestled in that era, but also maybe because it's an NWA thing, like you're wrestling for the NWA title, mm-hmm. so you wrestle an NWA title match. I could see that and also see just like maybe a
1: bit of tribute to the legends that are showing up tonight. Very possibly yeah. do a bit of a throwback match
0: that way. Mm-hmm. But that's why you get all the stuff like the uh all the bleeding, for instance. Mm-hmm. Which this is a point where there's too definitely too much bleeding. We, that was what, Dark eight eighty five, I think? The one show where it was like T V M A. Uh yeah, eighty five, yes. Eighty five, yeah. With
1: Magnum TA and Tully Blanchard.
0: But also everyone else. On <laughs> and the also show. everyone else, yes. <laughs> I don't know, I'm going to seesaw about this match, because they go to the blood fairly quickly to get drama. That's the old school, you know, get some color, get some heat situation. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily need that for the match, but they they did it anyways.
1: Yeah. I think they do play it nicely into the storyline, though, and Tony actually even references Stargate 84 at one point. Yes. But they kind of do play with it where Wyndham plays up that it is interfering with his vision, And actually, like, kind of works with that, where you can sense that that seems to be the point where he starts really getting frustrated and turning more heelish. Mm. So, for me, it actually ended up working well with the storyline that they had set up in this one. That before that, he's trying to fight more, and after that is where you start noting him feeling like I need to withdraw, or taking shortcuts or things like that, more than at the beginning.
0: I can see that, yeah.
1: Seems to be the pivot
0: point. Mm -hmm. They definitely get a lot going on in that finish yes because that's got to be down for the the walk away from the ring come back to the ring spot but then knock down again for the belt shot yes i guess i decided not to dq him because there's a pin going on
1: yeah it's i guess it's kind of like well you're gonna lose anyway so yeah i suppose so this was an enjoyable singles match between two very very good performers the action was really good and they made every strike feel strong there was a nice flow with Arn getting the better of the wrestling, but slipping up and getting hit hard to transition to more of a brawl that favored Wyndham, until he managed to use the environment to injure Wyndham and make it even again.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I really liked Arn's oh heck, what did I just do kind of reaction when he threw Randy Anderson down at the end. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a perfect like heat of the moment kind of thing that worked great with the ending. So there was not atmosphere to this one, but a
0: good solid match from good solid performers, I thought. Mm-hmm. At Beach Blast, Wyndham would face his biggest challenge yet as a NWA champion, defending it against Ric Flair. Okay. Ooh. <laughs> uh, this would also be getting us to the point where the NWA title was replaced and rebranded as the WCW International Heavyweight title. Yes.
1: As WCW withdraws finally from the NWA, they decide to keep
0: the belt. <laughs> yes. That, that's an interesting time. <laughs> yes. As for Arn, he would team up with his new partner, Paul Roma, the... One the fans definitely love here. Yeah. To challenge the Hollywood Blonde for the tag titles. I'd be blessed.
1: We go back to the announcers and Tony says, we've had a bit of everything tonight. Larry says he's never seen Arn lose his cool like that in Shovel ref, and agrees that you could see from the look on his face that he knew he'd screwed up. Tony builds up the upcoming Vader versus Bulldog match and Larry criticizes Bulldog for interfering in Vader's public workout. So our final match is the British Bulldog, Davey Boy Smith, versus Big Van Vader with Harley Race for Vader's WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Referee
0: for this match is Nick Patrick. Big Van Vader has been very dominant and very destructive. In Kayfabe, he injured Sting to be able to win the title in the first place, and has been injuring people along the way, most notably Cactus Jack, leading to his whole Amnesia Angle yes and legit injuring joe thurman a jobber who took a bad uh stamp from him it's weird that it, that's mentioned so much in the build-up i mean it did happen but it feels weird to mention like a legit injury that happened that was not intentional
1: yeah it's that blurring of the lines in wrestling sometimes they're like yeah we can totally use this and maybe sometimes you should and sometimes you shouldn't i hope they at least like did get permission from Thurman to I make hope that so,
0: yeah. part of things. but The thing is, I mean, you for this story, you already have Sting. Yeah. And in fact, is Jack and you have Ron Simmons. Yeah. Because in Kayfabe, he ended Ron Simmons after Starcade and won the belt from at a house show. So you have enough there without mentioning the guy who legit was like, partly paralyzed for a while. Yeah. So the British bulldog anyways, after all that has stepped up to stop him and take the title away from him. For... Listeners, it's worth noting that you're mentioning Vader's quote-unquote public workouts. Mm-hmm. That's him beating up jobbers. Kind of figured. But just to clarify, it's it's not him like sitting on a bench in the ring lifting weights. Because <laughs> obviously, why are you protesting that? Yeah, just to clear, he's protesting his, his workout because they're possibly injuring, legit injuring jobbers. <laughs> yes.
1: Bulldog comes out with a terrific glittery Union Jack cape. That has bulldog in text along the red stripe in the middle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Looks awesome. It does, yeah. I also have to note his wrestling gear. I think it's some of the best ever designed, honestly. Mm-hmm. It's a great design, reflective of the Union Jack, with fringe that highlights every movement he makes. Right. Really helps him look dynamic in the ring. Oh, yeah. Tony points out a sign saying that Smith will win the title for Cactus Jack. And Larry jokes that there's another that says he'll have a hospital bed next to Cactus Jack instead. <laughs> nice to see Larry Barrett's own sign. <laughs> Vader sadly lacks the Mastodon mask this time. Oh. He signals that it's Vader time. Harley Race cuts a promo to a camera, but we don't cut to it, so that's lost to time. <laughs> Vader flexes, and Bulldog looks on impassively. Neither can move the other on early lockups. But Bulldog just absorbs a Vader clothesline and a charging double forearm, and Vader is stunned, but recovers quickly to beat the heck out of Bulldog with hard strikes in the corner. Vader chokes Bulldog on the apron, which draws a lecture from Patrick, which lets Race land his own monster punch on Bulldog. It's a really great punch, actually.
0: He really builds up to it, too. He's like,
1: yeah. Ah, punch you. Bulldog dodges a charging splash on the outside, and Vader spills over the barricade. Bulldog hefts Vader onto his shoulder for a slam. Mm-hmm. Back inside, he hits a stalling vertical suplex. Yes. Holy s***. It's like a legit 10 seconds up in the air, yeah. It's amazing, amazing yeah. stuff. Again, he catches a top rope dive to power slam Vader, and then clotheslines him over the top rope, soaking in the crowd's well-deserved cheers. Absolutely, yeah. Back in, Bulldog counters clotheslines with a crucifix pin attempt, but Vader throws himself back to land on top hard, and Bulldog howls in pain. It's almost a Samoan drop. It, it almost is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Vader goes to work, including vicious elbow drops, a second rope splash for two, and your favorite owl, the falling refrigerator. It's a great spot. <laughs> <laughs> I love that name. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. That should have been its legit name. It's great, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hard forearm strikes in the corner as Bulldog's bleeding from the nose, but Bulldog slightly awkwardly counters the superplex to hurl Vader to the mat. It looked like he wanted something else, but couldn't get the proper footing, so he mm. adjusted. They throw it a little bit too long up there, but it, they cover it, yeah. Bulldog flying headbutt leaves both laying to their feet, and there's an odd bit where it looks like Vader-Bulldog-Bulldog, Bulldog. <laughs> just just realized what I said. <laughs> yes. But I guess it was actually Bulldog throwing Vader down for two. Vader lands nasty strikes, but Bulldog gets two by dodging a drop on an attempted sunset flip. Vader lands a splash, but hurts himself in the process and Bulldog is up first, but Vader flings him through the ropes for race to knee drop him. Back in, Vader beats the hell out of Bulldog mm-hmm. as Larry calls for Stu to come throw in the towel. <laughs> but on a Vader rear chin lock, Bulldog lifts Vader on his shoulders again Mm -hmm. for an electric chair drop. Great shot of a absolutely shocked Harley Race. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Terrific reaction by him there. He's totally on for this match. Oh, yeah. Bulldog earns two off strikes and catches a Vader crossbody, hefts him on his shoulder and slams him for another two. But Race pulls him out of the ring. And while Bulldog punches him, Vader nails him with a chair to draw the DQ. Bulldog wins, but Vader keeps the title. Vader rolls Bulldog in, and Bagwell charges to save him. Vader disposes of him and two cold Scorpio with ease, chucking both out of the ring. Vader goes for a power bomb on Bulldog, but Sting charges down and launches off the top rope, clotheslining him down and driving him from the ring to save Bulldog. Vader retreats as three other guys run down, I couldn't tell who they were, though. Two had serious mullets to help guard as Sting checks on
0: Bulldog. They might be the um, Cole twins, maybe. There's two twins that had those long mullets. Might have been them. Uh, thoughts on this one? It was a
1: strong, hard-hitting match. Holy crap, yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's really impressive, even after all this time, to see how strong British Bulldog was at this point. Um, it's just, wow, yeah. You can obviously understand that the setup to a suplex is a, you know, what's forty 60. They're doing some of the work. Hopefully it would help you out. Right, yeah. Like, they're helping get off the ground. You've got to get them over a certain point. But then, so he's got to hold them up there. And even with displacement, that's still strength holding guy up that long without your legs just blocking underneath you. Yes. Let alone shattering under the weight. Absolutely, that, that's one of the most
1: incredible things I've seen. Yes. Someone doing a stalling suplex to Vader. Yes, it's amazing.
0: He's also very smooth for the most part in his thing. Mm-hmm. There's some of these guys that are real strong, but they're sort of lumber around. He's fairly solid technically here. He has good speed as well. He's got everything going for him in this match, honestly.
1: Yeah, I love his transition to the crucifix pin whenever he does that, too. It, it's just so smooth every time.
0: Yeah. It reminded me of The Rock when he would do his, like, foot over DDT. <laughs> that's, yep. like, smoothest of that whole thing, yeah. One thing that's really neat in this match, too, is seeing all the facets of Vader's mat game. Because when he's be a big, scary, knock-you-down guy, he definitely does that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at the same time, he can suddenly be in peril and, you know, be in danger of losing his title, be thrown around at and at, at, at shock, at, you know, being knocked over by a Bulldog or him absorbing a blow. So, again, he's not just big, strong guy. He's also really good stamina of those matches as well. Like you said in a lot of matches. Absolutely, yeah. As a point of commentary, he can really go for a long time, especially given his size and just how he works in the ring. Yeah, he's always
1: surprising on that. There's very few matches where I can say I feel like, oh my gosh, Vader's getting tired. Mm-hmm. In some matches, longer ones, you can see him catching his breath for a moment. But he always comes back from it.
0: Yeah, that flare match at Starcade, mm-hmm. for instance. That's a longer one and a more physically active one. The Sting match we have at Starcade 92 before this. Right, yep. With the fact that he, that was the second match of the night at that point. True, yep. Yeah. Um, obviously, the fact that it's a cheap finish does take it away from Bit. It'd been nice to see a way to have either Bulldog just fight out, cheated out of a win, like, you know, he goes for a slam and Race pulls his legs at cl- that classic Bit. I don't know what Vader obviously used the title, although obviously at this point Bulldog had earned it, I think. Mm-hmm. So if they, if they gave it to him as a short run, I wouldn't have been upset at it either. He really did perform very well in here. So it's a shame it just kind of stops, but it definitely reached a big apex with that running crossbind in the corner, lift him up, slam him thing. Oh my gosh, yeah. I said the
1: stalling suplex was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. That actually, I think, topped it. Mm hmm. And I realized he propped himself with the corner a bit yeah. to help absorb the blow. But still, a guy the size of Vader barrels at you and you like, don't move.
0: Yeah. <laughs> There's a match with uh, John Cena where Edge of the crossbody from the top and he goes down with it, but rolls up to his feet and lifts him up like in yes. one amazingly smooth motion. <laughs> it's bits like that. It's a combination of smoothness and power and it's the finesse there. It makes you really impressed with people. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, this was an amazing match. Bulldog looked incredibly powerful, with impressive feats of strength, but what I liked is they never actually made Vader look weak. No. It's not that Bulldog can overwhelm Vader, it's just that for the perhaps the first time, Vader's up against someone who can fully absorb his offense.
0: And he can match him, yeah.
1: Yeah, for at least a little while. <laughs> yes, for sure, yeah. Vader still managed to be his normal, dominant, brutal self after he weathered the initial storm, but Bulldog's comeback spots were some of the most incredible I have ever seen in a match. Kudos to both guys for the performance. This was one that clearly required a lot of guts and a lot of trust for those spots to be accomplished safely. Because, I mean, if, if you're Vader and you're looking at this guy and saying, yeah, so he's going to hold me upside down in the air, you you got to believe he could do it. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to fling himself at him, when you could easily go flying outside the ring if he tilts over or something, you got to believe that this guy's going to be capable of it. Yeah. It's like, it's it's a great team performance by the two of them here. I wasn't as bothered by the DQ finish, I think. Now, probably this doesn't happen, but it feels to me like it actually serves to build Bulldog up more. It does, for sure, yeah. As they point out on commentary, it's an expression of Vader being really worried about this guy for perhaps the first time, having this extreme amount of worry that he could actually lose here, and so deciding to take this shortcut and uh, and get out of there and maybe you know face him another day. So, conditional on this going forward and Bulldog being a big thing in the company still, it's actually a good ending, but I realize this is WCW, they probably screwed that up, so uh, we'll see on where it goes, but I, I think it
0: didn't hurt the match to me at all. And it was uh, just a terrific match. Oh, yeah. No, I still love the match. Don't get me wrong. It's just it'd been nice to have a conclusive finish to it, like I, I feel. But I still like the match a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm a little confused by the ending bit with Bulldog. He goes like he's going to lift up Harley Race, but then he sort of sets him down and punches him. I wonder
1: if maybe Vader was supposed to be there a little
0: bit faster or something. Yeah. I remember watching that. I was like, yeah, what is he doing there? So you lift him up like for a choke slam or something, and then set him down and punch them instead. It's just it's a very minor thing. Which is like, oh, it's just like that's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, um, absolutely terrific match. Yeah, absolutely. The pair would round out the tag match that is main eventing the next show at Beach Blast. So we'd have Sting and the British Bulldog against Vader and the man that ruled the world, Sid. <laughs> Else's note: There's an odd trend that starts with that show as well. So going into this, you have Vader as champion defending his title. Now, coming out of this show, you have Vader almost always main eventing pay per views like Beach Blast and Fall Brawl, but he'd never defend the title on pay per view. Oh, interesting. Like he had Jack match, matched not for the title for some reason. gets like Halloween Havoc. Hmm. And there's Battle Bowl, and yeah, he's he's always around, and he's visible world champion. It's just, his matches are just not title matches for some reason. Huh. There's probably a story behind that, I don't know.
1: We cut to Eric Bischoff, who is with Magnum TA. Always good to see Magnum. Yeah. It's funny, I have such a, like, attachment to the guy, despite the fact that I've only actually ever seen one of his matches. That's true, yeah. It was awesome! <laughs> it was, yeah. But I've only seen one of his matches, but I just, I, I like the guy. Magnum says it was an exciting evening, and that fighting for the world title brings everyone up. Magnum says Vader's a guy who doesn't care what anyone else thinks, and he predicts further matches between Bulldog and Vader for the title. I would be up for that. Absolutely, yeah. Eric says that Bulldog showed intensity and could really take it to Vader. Magnum says Vader could walk the walk and talk the talk, but men like Sting and Bulldog can give him the challenge that he wants. We go back to Tony and Larry, and they're with Vern Ganya. Tony shakes his hand and says, it's been great having him be part of Slambury. Vern thinks the WCW mm-hmm. has captured the real wrestling talent of the world. And he says, the WCW is king of wrestling. <laughs> I know why you keep repeating it like that, Bob. It's <laughs> weird. It seems to happen, actually, more than a few times tonight. A lot of the the older guys coming back in refer to it that way. Yeah. I'm guessing it's ones that just literally never worked for WCW. For sure, yeah. So they just think of it, you know, if you were saying the AWA or the WWF, those make sense. Mm-hmm. Larry gives us his pyramids line again, and Tony signs off, and Slamberry 93 is done. So let's take a moment here to discuss the, the overall Legends promos tonight. Thoughts on those, Al?
0: Uh, for the most part that—that they're really good. Uh, most of the guys came out, they just sort of had fun. They used some of them wisely to build up the wrestlers on the show, like Sid, or the ending bit with Dick and Vader. I thought, overall, it was a good use of them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I thought they
1: were, in large part, pretty fun promos. Some were utterly hilarious. Yeah. But even the ones that were more serious were just nice to see. They all seemed genuinely touched to be there in front of the carot again, able to talk and run through some of their old catchphrases and just reminisce on their achievements and hang out with old friends. Yeah, yeah. Only some really related to what was going on in the modern wrestling storylines, and there were a lot of these. But I don't know that I'd cut even one. And those that did mention the modern characters did a lot to build them up, like you said. Yeah. I thought they gave the night a good, unique atmosphere, and I really enjoyed them.
0: They were short enough that they, weren't, they didn't make the show start and stop, so I thought that was good, yeah. No, right. That's the key thing for me, yeah.
1: Yeah, it doesn't slow it down at all, but it just gives it a different atmosphere.
0: Yeah, it's short breaks between the matches while they can get refs changed out and people get ready, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So, overall thoughts on Slamboree 93?
0: It was all over the place, to be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, for the most part, it was all really good, though. Mm-hmm. It opened strongly. Thankfully, the SID match was super short, so didn't have time to, anything to really go wrong in the kick. I thought the Legends part and the matches they had, for the most part, were good. Two of the three really used the assets they had well. Mm-hmm. You got them there for name value, do a couple spots, just sort of be around and active, and then leave. It's only when they went a bit self-indulgent with the whole Dory Fung Jr., Nick Bachwinkle thing, that they went a little too long and, for me, didn't do as well with it, unfortunately
3: hmm
0: but yeah there's only a few real downsides to the, to the show i mean sid vicious again just that match isn't great unfortunately the prisoner really drags down sting to i guess uh solitary confinement i uh, think with the theme going yeah the end of the show really strongly mm-hmm. it's a weird reverse of how later ones would go we had these really strong mid cards and opening acts and then everyone that really couldn't work that well anymore was getting 20 minute matches at this point when the really talented people are actually still in the main event which is nice to see
1: yeah uh we we seem to say this a lot for the 80s shows and some of the early 90s shows Mm -hmm. that they can be average-ish or even sometimes bad in the early card but then suddenly take a
0: huge upswing in
1: like the last three to four matches oftentimes yeah exactly
0: they pretty strongly there's some low points there that's never well some of the shows where there's like three or four Okay or disappointing matches in a row. It's pretty evenly dispersed with the action. Mm-hmm. I would have probably split the legend stuff up a bit more, um, just because it's them all in a row like that, but otherwise, it was a fairly good use of them and using them throughout the show in the interviews as mentioned was strong. Okay. It's a shame that they couldn't draw like half capacity in the arena. Yeah, yeah, that's unfortunate. Because there's a lot of shots when you're watching the action, you just see all this empty Bread seeing the background. Yeah. Oh. Sort of,
1: <laughs> yeah, I think your feelings about this show may be influenced pretty heavily by how you feel about the assorted legends content. Yeah. Both in terms of the promo time afforded them and the three legends matches. For my part, I appreciated it. I think WCW is at its best when it's honoring its history and when it brings out the more sports-like presentation. And this first slampery had both of those in spades. I will admit the Legends matches are slower and at times a bit sloppier than those of the current roster, but it just felt good watching them get out there and wrestle again. Even the Dory Funk Jr. vs. Nick Bachwinkle match, which I would have liked better if it were trimmed down a bit, mm-hmm. had a lot to offer and showed hints of why these men had been so successful in the wrestling business. And yes, there were a lot of Legends promos tonight, but they were all fun in their own way, and I wouldn't want to take the spotlight away from them. Slamboree 93 declared its purpose from its title, honestly. Tonight was about the legends, about bringing them back together to be honored. So if anything, it's the modern wrestling that's the extra tonight. Yeah. How did that extra turn out? Well, of the seven modern matches, four were good to great. One was perfectly acceptable. One was so short it can pretty much be ignored. (laughs) And only one was outright bad. And that wasn't hugely long, though it did feel like it. Yes. So yeah, the modern side of the show largely turned out good. My only real complaint, aside from never wanting to see The Prisoner on a WCW show again, is that I felt like we didn't get a ton of story content for those matches outside of the matches themselves. Mm-hmm. But again, they were almost the side attraction tonight.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: The commentary team was terrific. Larry and Tony make a great team, and play off each other very well for the duration, getting into amusing arguments, but making good points about the matches as well. Larry brought a lot of character and a well of wrestling knowledge, and Tony seemed to be having a lot of fun interacting with him. Yeah. Larry also had deep knowledge of a lot of the legends and really enhanced that part of the show in particular. They're a good team and one I'd like to see again, especially if you get more legends content.
0: It was funny, too, that Larry always wouldn't bring up if he beat or and or retired <laughs> yes. the people in there. Because <laughs> he mentioned Dick Boggle, he, he retired. And also with him and Bruno, he mentions that as well. Yes. Yeah, he, he
1: really does a good job still playing heelish. Honoring the people, but also being like, but I'm good too.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's a a delicate balance sometimes, yeah. Yeah, I
1: think my favorite line from him in the night was, these are some of the strongest men in wrestling. And then he pauses for a split second and says, and I'm proud to be one of them. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. (laughs) This is great. Minor flubs aside here and there, I really like the production tonight, particularly the little video packages for each of the Legends wrestlers and the Hall of Fame presentation. It felt like a very respectful night, a night of genuine honor and history. Yes, we had moments like the power failure early on, and the cameraman being in the way of Scorpio's spot.
0: A couple other spots as well, yeah.
1: Yes. And the oddity of the Dos Hombres concept. (laughs) But by and large, this felt like a high point for WCW production. And with a lot of moving parts of the night, it kind of surprised me how smoothly everything went. It was a good night. Even if you're not as high on the Legends things, and maybe won't enjoy those as much, even if you skipped those matches, there's still a seven-match wrestling show, of which five are entirely worth your time, and one more will take up pretty much none of it. Yes. Skip Sting vs. The Prisoner, but the rest of Slamboree is good fun, and a look at a WCW that respects its history. Yeah. It really grew on me, and I think I'm going to look back on this one quite fondly. Yeah, I can see that. So, time for our match of the
0: night and MVP, Al. Uh, match of the night? That's a tricky one. Um, the cage match was really good. Mm-hmm. I thought the NBA title match was good. Most of the tag matches as a whole were, were quite good, varying levels of that. For me, I think just for the combination of brutality and smoothness, I have to go with Bulldog versus Vader. Mm-hmm. It hits hit all, my, all my buttons. It just has the Big strong guys doing big strong guy things, but they're also technically proficient Mm -hmm. and quick and tell a good story. Yes. So it gets all the things you need for them to do.
1: Yeah, I was all ready to give this to the tag title match, but then Bulldog versus Vader happened. And Mm -hmm. no question, that's match of the night for sure. I would characterize it as a career defining performance for Bulldog as he showcased his incredible strength but all without taking a single thing away from the powerful Vader. It built Bulldog into a potential superstar, but did no damage to Vader in the process, and that is a hard feat to accomplish, oh, yeah. but the two managed it incredibly
0: well.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: MVP? So obviously it's between British Bulldog and Vader for me, because of that match. Mm-hmm. I think it narrowly edges to Vader for me, just okay. because like I said, Vader showed all the facets of his character and performance in the ring. Cause he could have just given you the big hard hitting guy stuff and sold but you know not been committed to selling. Some guys do that, you know. Yeah. They sell for the match, but you don't you know their heart's not in it. But he really went out of his way to make sure that he sold everything that Bulldog did. Showed like, wow, this guy can actually throw me around, he's actually a threat to me. And that aids his offense because then he's hitting him extra hard, or it looks like he is anyways, sometimes legit than he is. Yes. <laughs> because he sees him as a threat. Yeah. Like I can hit this guy extra hard in this punch, so he stays down. Yeah, it's a tough one, but I think Vader for that extra level for me narrowly edges him out as M V P. Okay.
1: I I was I was really wrestling with this a lot uh for for the past day and i think much like you did with the road warriors once al i'm gonna go with the team okay because i can't separate these people okay and my mvp is tony shivane and larry zabisco interesting they enhanced the heck out of this night with hugely entertaining discussions and camaraderie And it was so much fun listening to the two just get to be fans as much as they were commentators. It was clear they were having fun getting to watch and listen to guys that they'd watched or worked with in the past. Sure. I was tempted by Bulldog and tempted by Vader as well. And I kept trying to pick either Shivani or Zabisco. And I just couldn't because they worked together so exceptionally well on this show. Um, it's, It's really the combination of them that I think gave me the greatest enjoyment on the show.
0: Yeah, no, I, I don't agree with that at all. Yeah. <laughs> and that wraps up our
1: review of Slambury 93. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about the Slamberries as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify stitcher radio or tune in and please if you've enjoyed this show give us a rating or review and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us many thanks to osw review for attendance and pay-per-view figures and to gina trujillo for our logo next up slamboree 1994 a night with the classics Presumably, that means it features showings of Citizen Kane and It's a Wonderful Life. Sure, sure. (laughs) Remember, every time a bell rings, Ric Flair wins a belt. Woo! (laughs) (laughs) Can you hear it? Can you hear that woo? (laughs) This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night,
0: everybody. Happy wrestling.
1: Magnum says Vader could walk the talk. Sorry. Magnum <laughs> I mean, you could have said that. Yeah.